on Facebook, like, the next time I see Joshua Lappin Bertoni, I'm going to kill him. I think strangle like, was the word. I didn't say kill. Whatever my, happens my when I'm, yeah, I know. Whatever happens once my hands are around your neck is basically up to God. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute... Something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Backroll the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 147 for October MMXVII. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by Looking Beyond, a Batman Beyond podcast, and I was lucky enough to be asked to join. For this month, I believe, they were covering the episode A Touch of Curare, where Commissioner Gordon, Barbara Gordon, is really highlighted. So uh, check that out for a great discussion. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Please support TBU and subscribe to the show on Patreon by going to the BatmanUniverse.net. Well, I'm a little nervous about today. There, are, I think there are some co-hosts that, well, either it's the first time I talked with them, so I think it's very nice and cordial. There are some that we already know that, you know, there might be some issues, like with Shag, you know, he might insult me a lot. Tom, I've got to be careful that I don't anger him. This guy's a little out of control. He's a bit of a wild card. Not really sure what's going to happen. Can't really, you know, stamp down any sort of characteristic of his. Usually I say really bizarre things like, you know, the wee-wee, the male wee-wee is 
basically uncontrollable. I think that's the last time that we were on together. No, it's not an anniversary, but he asked to be on for Cataclysm, and I couldn't really say no. So please welcome back on an off, this is great, an off anniversary time. It's my good and dear friend, Joshua Lappin-Bertoni. It's not December. <laughs> <laughs> What's with that introduction? I'm not the Joker. You're like he's uncontrollable. We never know what he's up to. It's like wow, I think this- it's pretty <laughs> true, though. You're the one who comes up with these crazy schemes. I just like buy in sometimes and help you out. <laughs> it, like you haven't had any, like you know, like crazy ones of your own. Oh, sure, like, sure. Like, you and Donovan are still carrying around that like picture of me, and every time I bring that up, Donovan's like, "Oh, we could tell you that now," and you're like, "No, not yet." <laughs> <laughs> it still hasn't paid off yet. Well, it should. I actually have to. We did what we had to do, so I should, um, yeah. It's something should be revealed soon, I guess. Oh, gosh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it will pay off. Hey, well. Yeah, that, was, that was foreboding. <laughs> yeah, well, it won't be too bad. It's. Does this feel weird to you to be on a non-anniversary episode? It's, um... <laughs> I I, I, know, I know that you know you don't like those like two aliens from The Simpsons, but there was like um, oh, there was a joke one episode because um, they only show up usually for Halloween episodes, and sometimes they'll cameo in like another thing. But they there was an episode a few years ago where like they showed up and it wasn't a Halloween episode, and Homer says, "Hey, it's not Halloween," and like that kind that's kind of like what this feels like, you know? It's um it's not an anniversary, and here I am. Yet um, there you are. I don't know. It's it doesn't feel. It's too weird because we've podcasted together on like other stuff throughout the year before. Like, you know, you did the first year of Gotham Chronicle with us mm-hmm. and uh, you and I overlapped on uh, select episodes of like Crawl Space and Comic Book Film Review. And we've done like San Diego specials and stuff before. So it's not like we only podcast in December. But uh, uh, Don brought up to me and I, and I realized, too, that like I'm never on Batgirl the Oracle like just me. And, and like, you know, so... I would. I decided to ask because it was Cataclysm, and I knew it was coming up, and that's a storyline near and dear to my heart. So, so. were you sad that uh, that you've never been on just you? I mean, not really. I mean, I, I wasn't happy. But, <laughs> it's, um, <laughs> oh my gosh! I wasn't happy, but it's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> but like, I hear, and it's like, oh, Dawn's on again for like the eighth time in a year, and then, then, and like, you know, you're rotating between Shag and and Pan Pan, and then you know an occasional Bailey thrown in there. So, oh my goodness. but I mean, it, you know, it was it wasn't like it was like tearing me up inside. I mean, apparently all I had to do was ask. So, yeah, all you, you have know. to do is ask, and it's, I wasn't doing it like vindictively, like I'm trying to keep him off here as much as I can. So yeah, never think that. <laughs> Well, and it's not like I haven't been on before and like and and you still invite me on for the anniversary show despite, you know, the fact that like we lay all these like weird traps like each and every year with these Barry and Iris, you know, things and stuff like that. Yep. Barry and Iris. Yeah. You you did something pretty fun this past uh, weekend. Uh, Do you want to share with listeners what you did? Oh, uh, when I went to New York for Tribeca uh, TV Festival. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Do you not like, want to? I don't know what you mean. No, no, no. Let's oh, let's okay. talk about okay. it. Um, I got um, I've basically discovered more and more that like you know if you want to like get take press tickets for these things, really you don't wait for the invitation. You just like you find the person in charge of them and you call up and you ask and like sometimes you have to follow up. So I saw that Gotham was doing a special screening. I've been covering Gotham for like the BatmanUniverse.net, you know, with the Gotham Chronicle and like the San Diego stuff. So I thought, you know what, this might be fun. I emailed them a few uh, months ago, the people in charge of it, and they gave me a 
ticket to go to the screening, which was like in this movie theater in uh, New York, and cover the red carpet, which I've never done a red carpet before. And um, I was actually really nervous because, you know, Stella and I, you know, and Don and, you know, whoever's with us, you know, some of the years we haven't had Dustin in a while, you know, and we had uh, Ben last year and um, we had John and Zach with us one year. But in any case, you know, it's usually Don, Stella and I. We go to these press rooms and there's like two sections. There's the press roundtable where we sit around and do those. I mean, Stella explained the roundtable interview process uh, last episode with Pan Pan, so I don't have to get too much into that. And then there's these press lines where everyone kind of like stands, you know, as if it's a red carpet and they like stop and talk to the people. But so I know the Comic-Con ones, but I'm like, I don't know the etiquette for this one. Like, how long am I going to be allowed to talk to everyone? And everyone's like, what are you going to wear? Like, every single friend I asked was like, what are you going to wear? And I said, I guess I'll dress formal. But, like, the other reporters were all in, like, jeans and, like, T-shirts. So I wasn't completely overdressed, and I was glad I dressed nice. But uh, that was fun. I, you know, flew into New York. I I only took one day off of work, so I was, like, you know, back that night. And, um, you know, uh, took uh, mass transit, which to a Floridian, that's, like, a big deal, like, taking New York mass transits. And um, I did the red carpet, and it was fun. Um, ben McKenzie was there, uh, Jessica Lucas, uh, who plays uh, Tabitha, and uh, Aaron Richards, who plays uh, Barbara Kane, an, an old friend of Stella yeah. and mine, and uh, <laughs> Robin Lord Taylor. I guess I got a little bit of uh, vindication because a few here years ago. Here we go. Um, here we go. You told me to tell the story. <laughs> A few years ago, um, when we, um, I had the idea when we were doing the Gotham Roundtable that I would uh, show each actor a picture of their first appearance in the comic and, like, you know, and get them to read the dialogue. And Robin Lord Taylor did it, and it was funny. Sean Pert, we did it for Alfred. Um, Cameron B. Kendova was a little confused, but, like, you know, we got a good, like, soundbite from her. And um, when Marina Baccarin sits down to do it for Leslie Tompkins, I'm, like, pulling out my iPad or whatever it was that I had, and Stella, like, whispers to me, I don't think you should do it. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? You said, I, I, I just don't think that she's in the mood for this. And I'm like, I, I brushed it off as I often do with Stella's advice. Oh, my as, gosh. As, Thank you for finally admitting that. As I often do with Stella's advice. And and as often as the case, she gives the advice for a reason. Because Marina Vicarin had a very, like, icy cold reaction. She's like, why are you showing me this? And, like, <laughs> it was very awkward afterwards. And, uh. Uh, I did that. I did a similar thing this year with Aaron Richards, and she had the opposite, opposite reaction that um, Marina Bacarin had. And uh, you can find that on YouTube because um, Dustin put that on the BatmanUniverse.net's um, YouTube page. And uh, she's like absolutely delighted, and she's reading it, and she's like, oh my God, I look hot, you know, in the old pictures. We have the joke that Ben McKenzie's like a homeless cop because for the first two seasons of Gotham, James Gordon was homeless. So I'm, like, showing him that, like, Gordon used to have um, a mansion and a butler. And Ben McKenzie's, like, surprised. Then he gets to the Tony Gordon page where, like, there's an old Silver Age story where you find out that, like, Tony Gordon, Barbara Gordon's, you know, like, forgotten older brother used to give, like, Commissioner Gordon uh, full body massages every night. And Ben McKenzie says, I've seen this. Some guy put this on my Twitter. And I, like, you know... If you would have seen my Steve Dicko eyes right there, I was like, yeah, that guy was probably me. And Ben McKenzie, like, points at me and, like, laughs. He says, ah, that was you. And uh, that that's also on the Batman Universe's YouTube page. So uh, that was fun. Then, you know, we all watched uh, the new episode together with the cast, which, um, you know, it, it's interesting seeing a TV show like you, know, like you and I did with Walking Dead a few years ago, mm-hmm. you know, in a movie theater with an audience, with popcorn. It's It's a very fun experience so um 
I'm glad I went because I almost didn't go because there's a lot going on with moving and everything, you know, uh, the, these like few weeks. But I had the press pass and it was like I've never done a red carpet before. Like, you know what? I'm like, this is a new, interesting experience. I, I want to do this. And uh, one fun thing, which I sent the picture to Dustin, was like when you go to the red carpet, there's these assigned spaces where you're supposed to stand and like the space will say the name of your red website. And there was like a space that said the Batman universe. And I sent that to Dustin saying, in case you ever wanted to see how far your little website has gotten, you know, in the how many years has TV been around? Is it 10 years yeah, now or 10 it's 10 years yeah. next year? Yeah. Who was who was videographer for you? That was me. I bought a selfie stick. Oh, so you were holding it while interviewing? <laughs> yeah, it was it was very, very like hard. And I was like, gosh, I wish Dawn and Stella were here for like somebody yeah. <laughs> to help me. Or oh, or Dustin's like, um don't do it. Oh gosh. Josh, don't do it. Probably. Yeah, I would have done that. Uh, or Dustin's video stuff. But yeah, he needs to invest in I guess newer yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, I, I just I just use a selfie stick and that was hard because the selfie stick was really cheap and it like was falling apart. And like in the middle of the Robin Lord Taylor interview, like it like looked like his head was getting cut off. It, it, it did the trick. And I thought it was something new to try. And I just picked it up at the last minute. Um, um, and I'm doing New York Comic Con next week. Depending, I, I might have already been there and gone by the time this episode comes out. But it's really weird because I'm emailing the people from D.C. about like, you know, uh, you know that those interview things mm-hmm. and i'm emailing gary from warner brothers about like these things and it's like i i've done small conventions by myself before like you know uh, uh star wars celebration you know small local cons walker stalker con but like the big ones like san diego i've always had you and don with me except for the first time i went yeah but even then dustin and apple were there so it's really weird like arranging all these press rooms and like just knowing that like it's just gonna be me it's like where are dawn and stella yeah like <laughs> i at least need somebody to like you know help with the recorders or like help with the pictures or like or tell me no don't say that to that person or like or make fun of me when like i i confuse lena luther with um uh alex danvers oh my gosh yeah, you'll never live that down. Speaking of Comic-Con, now is the time to sort of air your laundry, I guess, in regards to things that I forgot. Because <laughs> I, I did read it, and I said, you know what, if you want to talk about those particular tales, I did choose to talk about your your little ward and his bathroom encounter, but if you wanted to also mention the bee, I guess, the killer bee, is that what I left out? <laughs> the killer bee, and, and I guess you mentioned Magic Harp, which... So, uh, Stella and I, for, for those of you who, who are really, really dense when you're listening to the show um, and you don't pick up on this, Stella and I have a very, very um, friendly, teasing, you know, brother, sister, you know, antagonistic, friendly relationship. What a way to describe it. So, okay. so, I, I'm, so Stella's like, oh, the show's so long. And every time the show's like short, I give her a hard time. I text her. You like, absolutely oh, Stella, do. You, the, 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 there's only one hour of the episode on there and she's like you know i hate you or like go away or like you know or you're horrible or i have so many texts from stella that like just say you're sick you're sick you're sick like that's all she <laughs> that's sent me all weekend thing. i do that to don too i did it today because of something he sent me yep that's mm-hmm. yeah that i mean it perfectly sums it up you're sick so so i'm teasing stella that like you know this is a six hour episode so i'm teasing her why not eight hours? And she's like, go write an email about it. So I did. And um, the tone of that email, which was completely misread, like, I'm obviously joking when I say, like, it needs to be eight hours. But then I listened to the episode of you and Tom Panarese, 
And you're like reading it like I'm being serious. And you're like asking it like, what do you think, Tom? Should it be eight hours? And like Tom's like, you know, answering it like, no, I don't think it's a good idea. And I'm like, that wasn't meant to be serious. <laughs> like, I'm not seriously suggesting like eight hours just so were. we can talk about killer bees. Like, and, kill- and magic carp. <laughs> And it's final evolution. And, and, and Magic Carp, like that—that that was really like me teasing you, yeah. like you know, like oh, you should have made it eight hours for that. And you and Tom are like, you know, like debating the merits of it. And I'm like, this wasn't meant to be we, debated. I seriously. take my letters seriously. <laughs> but from me, after, especially after that intro you gave him at the beginning of the podcast, where you're like, we never know what this guy's up to. Like, it's true. <laughs> that's the thing that you took we seriously. You're like a Magic Carp. We don't really know if you're going to succeed and mm-hmm. nibble on the things you're supposed to nibble or you could just die well it's uh so the, the, but in any case the killer bee story you know the um abbreviated version of it just so we're not here for you know three hours is us uh we kind of have this tradition in comic-con because don always winds up leaving us like early and stella and i like to take late flights out so we can spend monday together because you're so busy at the con yeah and there's like so much to do that you just don't get that downtime and like that day the unwind and play taurus so uh I like to get Monday night flights out so I can have Monday the chill out and everything. But Don always flies out early, even though we tell him not to. So Stella and I always do something touristy the last day. And uh, and Ben was with us this year. So we went to Aquatica. And when we went to, I guess it would have been lunch or an early dinner. Yeah. There was just these bees that, like, kept on following us. And we, like, moved seats, like, three times. And, like, the bees were, like... It, it was just really weird, and when I think about that trip, I think about the bees, and that, that that's what's funny about um, when I listen back to these uh, little documentaries that you do about the trip, like, <laughs> something that, like, sticks out in my mind, like, the Aquatica Trip of the Bees gets, like, 20 seconds on, like, you know, the, like, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, it didn't mean that much to you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the bees... The bees weren't a special member. We're like last. Oh, remember the bees didn't really harass me. It was just you and Ben. Do you think that the bees have like an anti-male, you know, maybe I don't know, like bias or something? Maybe. Do you think they're? Do you think they're um, militant feminist bees? Well, I don't know. You don't know. Maybe they're from (laughs) Themyscira and they just wanted. They're just not trusting of you. They're. If if I got in more sleep last night, I could like come back with like some sort of like pun like. Like, you know, like Donna Troy B or something, but nothing comes to mind. So okay. I'm sure that I'll listen. I'm sure I'll listen back to this later and be like, oh, well, of course. Of course. You could but obviously, yeah. obviously, you know, I always enjoy those San Diego episodes and I look forward to them because they're, they're like, you know, little yearbooks of our of our trip. Absolutely, and I love, yeah. you know, I love trying to figure out what songs are going to make it in there yeah. and, you know, and listening to you recount the stuff. And I listen to that episode, um, you know, uh, multiple times, like just because that was, you know a very positive like San Diego trip for me. And I like listening back to the highlights, Mm -hmm. including your Dave shut in Springfield shopper. Who are you? (laughs) Every time, every time that happened. Yeah. I know. And and now I'm going to be all by myself off the leash at New York. Oh my gosh. I'm so, well, you at least know. Oh, never mind. I was going to say Gotham. Like I, I trust you for on that, but yeah, you're right. If you go into something that you don't watch, I'm super concerned. (laughs) <laughs> i was like maybe i should try and go into legends of tomorrow and oh like my you and Dom were like no not after what you pulled with like supergirl <sighs> that's and, basically uh, correct and, 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 and i watched all of i watched almost all of super yeah arrow I, I legitimately hadn't watched any of them that was really for you and ben because you know it was ben watched all of arrow and and i know that you know you're a fan so like i, I was i was really in there for you know you guys yeah. and, that was uh, nice of you 
So I guess I should have just shut up and let you guys, you know, have all the Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Thanks for the spoiler. Uh- <laughs> I, I, another thing, too, whenever you do that imitation of him, like, instead of being 11 years old, he's like four and a half. Like, it's <laughs> like, his like voice quivers. It's like. <laughs> well, that's how it is. Well, I like how. Been through the ears of Stella. Yeah. The end one was fun when they were wrapping up San Diego, and I said that. I I thought that that was really it, him. Yeah, it wasn't, so that's good. I've been perfecting it. And and Ben, and ben thought it was him, too. Like, he, we were texting, and he was, uh, and I was like, yeah, it was Stella doing an imitation of you. He's like, wait, that wasn't me. And I was like, I know, I it fooled me, too. Yeah, like, fooled me, too. Yeah. You should do a, a diary at 1.2. If you and Don it, and then you'd have, like, three different perspectives. Because we're not always together the entire time. That would be like The Office, where, like, it cuts back from, like, you know, the different talking heads. Yeah. We did kind of, like, a mini-diary for Gotham Chronicle this year, but we just kind of focused on um, the Gotham press room yeah. and, like, the reactions to that. Yep. But uh, may- maybe next year we'll do, like, you know, I don't know, like, a, a video thing for TVU, like, uh, our adventures. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, the last thing before we get into the main event, which I'm sure will take up the bulk of this episode, is I want to talk to you about the film It. And because you had seen it, I had seen it, so I wanted to, and it's October, this is an October episode, and I'll have the special Halloween commentary on Halloween. But I wondered what your thoughts were of It, uh, and then I'll, yeah, a little discussion about it. Yeah, um, I... I haven't seen the original I hadn't seen the original movie in a long time and I don't know there's just I'm not usually a big fan of horror movies but for some reason you know I was kind of excited for this one maybe it's just something about I don't know there was just something about the story that like kind of resonated in me and that's the thing about Stephen King is like his his horror stories kind of you know go beyond you know people who are just into the horror genre because it touches certain aspects of your personality you know like he knows what buttons to push with people that you know just resonate Mm -hmm. and i wish there was a better way to articulate it so uh in preparation of the movie i did um uh, hurricane irma was coming towards florida which stella was also like angry at me about yeah absolutely so um i was like well i'm gonna be stuck at work for a few days so i downloaded the book and i started reading it um in preparation of the new movie and um to be honest, um, I didn't finish it, and I'm not sure if I'm going to. Um, the book is really good for a lot of people. I just – the problem for me was there was way too much focus on, like, the stuff that was happening when the clown wasn't killing people. Like, if a kid was riding a bike, that would take up, like, an entire chapter of, like, him describing the bike. And it was like Inception where there was flashbacks within flashbacks within uh. flashbacks. And the story was just so nonlinear that um, there, there was parts of it that I liked. And, and I'm, I might try and get back to it later, but – I was just like, all right, whatever, I'll just I'll just see the movie now. And uh, before I saw it, um, one of the kids at work who um, who is old enough for the original movie, he's uh, 13, you know, and in eighth grade, he wanted to see the um, the miniseries. And um, but he still kind of has, you know, a little bit of that fear. So, like, you know, we were watching it kind of, you know, heckling it like so that way the fear can be taken off of him. And uh, I hadn't seen the original in a while. And uh, it, it, it was good. It held up. But the special effects did not hold up too well. And some of it was more comical than anything. So I saw I was waiting for some friends to go see the new one with me and no one would go. They were all scared. So I've been wanting to go for a while and I've been working so much overtime because of Hurricane Irma. 
and just cooped up. I'm like, so one day I just said, you know what? I'm going. And, um, I had a great time. I enjoyed it. It was, um, a really good remake. And I kind of like how they just, um, I kind of like what they're doing where they're doing one chapter of them as kids and the other chapter of them as adults, instead of what the book and what the original miniseries did of like kind of all the jumping around, which, um, I didn't remember the jumping around until I rewatched the miniseries. Cause when I was reading the book, I was like, well, the, the movie did it better when it was just them as kids, the first half and them as adults, the second half. But then I saw the original movie again. I'm like, Oh no, they did that too. But, uh, I like this. The actors, did a good job. There was some weird things about the new movie. Um, like, cause they updated the setting where in the original book, it takes place in like the, uh, late fifties. And then like when there are the adults, it's like the, you know, eighties and they moved it up a little bit for the original movie where it's like 1960. Exactly. Like you still see like Kennedy hasn't been elected yet. Cause you still see like Eisenhower and Nixon in the classroom as like president and vice president. And then the, you know, it takes place in the eighties, uh, the current day stuff. So when they move up the timeline and I talked about this on Facebook and some people disagreed with me, I think it changes some things about like the childhood aspect. Cause I feel like, and again, I was born in 1985, so I can't really say this as like an expert or something, but I feel like childhood in the 1950s was different than childhood in the 1980s. Like the things that kids would do for fun and the culture and everything. And when, um, I think his name was Ben is saying high hole silver it's like, why is he, he's an 80s kid. He should be into like He-Man and Michael Jackson stuff. How would he know who Silver is? Mm. But that comes from like the original story. Like, why is he making this reference? Like, no kid in the 80s. But then someone on my Facebook, and I forget who it was, said, oh, when I was a kid in the 80s, I watched Lone Ranger. And I'm thinking, but was that usual? And they're, you know, like playing in the woods and stuff instead of like the arcade. and yeah. uh, Which kids did in the 80s too. But again, it's like kid culture was like different like instead of like playing in the woods with sticks which i know we're going to get people right into bto telling me that i'm wrong and uh and and they're right to do that because I, I can't say how other people spent their childhoods it just felt weird to me but then they would kind of like bring it back to the 80s by you know that new kids on the block subplot and uh <laughs> yeah you saw you saw batman 89 on a marquee yeah. and uh at one point one of the kids is um in an arcade and that's not a complaint in the movie it's just like a weird thing that kind of took me out of it a bit i wish that they kind of kept its time period accurate um instead of beverly being made fun of because she's like a poor girl they're like calling her like a slut and stuff so that's another weird thing too some of the dialogue to me felt like very very like 2017 mm. so they're kids who are dressed like they're in the 80s 80s while they're saying 2017 um like uh patterns of speech so it, it was a little you know time travel uh soup yeah. Well, I guess it, if it comes back 27 years later, we're going to be in 2016, so it's going to be pretty modern. So I don't know. I mean, it's going to be pretty interesting with, like, devices and stuff, what part two will be like. But, yeah, I think my first Halloween special that I did for BTL, I went through maybe, like, my top ten or top five, like, really freaky moments that I always remember, and it was one of them. And I really do like the the miniseries, but it also freaked me out, especially just, like, the initial 
scene where Georgie's arm gets ripped off and everything. So I'm like, you know, preparing myself for this. And I wondered how everyone in the theater like were, I wondered what they were thinking with that because I thought, well, this is going to happen. But yeah, I watched that that mini series, that TV series with my mom. And so I thought, you know what, let's go see this. So uh, I was sort of building it up because making it worse, I think, than it turned out to be, which was good. And, uh, you know, I checked in when my mom, uh, when she arrived, because we met up somewhere, I asked if she was, like, mentally and emotionally prepared. And she wasn't sure at that point. I will say that I was carded. My ID was asked for in purchasing tickets for it. So that was all, you know, that's always fun when you're... Not 17, but whatever. So, uh, yeah, no, we both really enjoyed it. I think the one thing I probably, to pull like a Dina Sawyer, would be to say that the F-bomb flew a little too much, especially because it was coming out of like 13-year-olds' mouths. Uh, But I thought, you know, violence-wise, it wasn't gratuitously gory. Um, I thought that the thrills were there and they were good. I didn't get too spooked, but my mom does things like, (gasps) and she'll jump. And so if she jumped, then I would jump. But we both enjoyed it. I always liked the part with the kids more in the, the miniseries, and so I really liked this. It was a little interesting to have Beverly taken uh, which wasn't you know something that happened and i guess it was a way to potentially galvanize the the group together because at that point they were really falling apart and so maybe she was like the linchpin and everyone sort of rallied around her but it was a little weird that of course you take the female and make her float i feel like we're kind of past the whole damsel in distress thing but like if i had to play devil's advocate i would say well it's not like she was, you know, flailing her arms saying, help Popeye, like, because yeah. even when she was taken, she's like, I'm not afraid of you, and therefore you can't hurt me. Yeah. So, you know, that was, uh, that, that, that was good, too, that, like, she wasn't the traditional, you know, like, victim or damsel in distress, but I do, I was kind of thinking, of course, yeah. they take the female, but, uh. And another thing, too, with the changing of the setting is, uh, Mike, as, like, the only black kid in the group, like, there was very clearly a different dynamic about that in the original stories right. because that was, you know, around the civil rights movement and when he's being picked on. And now it's because he's like the homeschool kid and the odd man out. Yeah. So the racial undertones of it aren't there. Not that racism, you know, was dead in the 80s either. Not that it's, you know, dead now either. But, you know, that's a whole other discussion that, you know, you can have other people on for. But <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's just one thing that, like, you know, when you change the setting, it changes some of the context about it but yeah i love the sewer scenes were um were, were great mm-hmm. um with them all coming together at the end and do you know like have you heard this controversy about like a scene that was in the book that yes. they, they did not include in the movie yes do you feel comfortable talking about that sure so the internet's making a big deal because i guess in the book and i didn't get up to this part in the book like after they defeat the clown to find their way out of the sewer beverly the, the, the kids have a sewer orgy and people are like saying, why wasn't this in the movie? And the producers are saying, because it's a sewer orgy with kids. We're not going to put that in. Of course, yeah. it's just really weird. But uh, one thing that I thought was kind of weird in the movie was uh, there's just a really long scene in this new one where like, they're all in their underwear for like a really long time. And I'm thinking, why didn't they just wear bathing suits? Like, why didn't the producers have them do that? Yeah. Like I, I didn't understand. And it was just like, it wasn't like big baggy boxers. It was small under and it was like a really long time. And I was, I don't, I, I thought that that was a weird 
choice where, again, if, you know, in this 2017 age, they could have just told them wear bathing suits because kids in the 80s wore bathing suits, you know, sure. it's, they're, they're, they're at a quarry. Yeah. But I, I did like when they tried to take a peek at the girl and she turns around and they all like try and act casual about it. Yeah, I guess I imagine, uh, you know, they originally thought it was just going to be them. So I, I guess it gets a little weird when Beverly arrives. So it's both weird for them as, and weird for the audience because I think it was if it was just the boys, then having them in their underwear is fine because they just imagined they were going to be with each other. They weren't thinking that Beverly was going to show up. As for that weird sex scene, I'm glad they didn't include it. They didn't include it in the TV film. I think it's certainly it's a section that I think some people like to forget. So I'm 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 surprised that there's internet outcry over it. It's a little strange. But it was one of these ways that they felt, I guess their group felt like they were disintegrating. And so they thought that, well, Beverly thought that it was a way to bring them all together. I'm not sure how detailed the book goes into it. According to a video I watched, it was pretty detailed. But I think in the book also, Beverly is like struggling with sexual awakening anyways. And I think it would have been weird. It wouldn't have went well with the book, with the film because, well... It, yeah, if they had done it in the film, it would have almost said yes to everything that everybody was saying about Beverly. Whereas it, with the film, because they were saying all these lies that she was sleeping with everyone and she was a slut, that their words not mine, that that's not true. And so why go against that and, and affirm that? Um, so I, I'm glad that they didn't do it. I also think that I was a little afraid that there was some sexual abuse going on with her father. I think there's certainly some hints. Oh, to that. I, I think that that's like very yeah. much uh, happening in, in all yeah. the versions that yeah. I like, uh, come across. Yeah. Like that's, that's very, very much, um, uh, on the, in the, in the context yeah. and especially when he's like, are you still my little girl? Right. Which I think he's, I think that's him asking if she's, um, sure. if she's pure yeah. still. Yeah. It's uh, very disturbing, but and I saw someone on the internet said, "Well, after they defeat Pennywise, you know, there's a scene of them coming out of the sewer. Maybe that scene still happened, and like we and we can just imagine it in our heads." And I'm like, "But why? <laughs> like, <laughs> why? Why do you want that yeah. scene to be canon?" I don't know. Yeah, it's, you sort of question question that person. And there was there was like a YouTube video where some like really really um like. Uh, I, I'm trying to figure out a way to describe this guy without vilifying, like, you know, one political or religious group because this guy isn't representative of all of them. But, I mean, I'm just going to say extremely right-wing person and acknowledge that, like, this doesn't represent all the right-wing, you know, uh, people. He he was, like, protesting outside the theater because that scene was in the book. He says, like, there shouldn't be a movie with, like, kids having sewer orgies. And I'm thinking, well, it's not in the movie, so why are you protesting the movie? But mm-hmm. I guess no one told him that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I wasn't in, it it wasn't in there. I think you get the sense of them being brought together at the very end of the final battle. They all work together as one group. And then of course they have their little blood oath, which, you know, I think is, is symbolic of that as well. So I, I think we've not missed anything. I think it's a weird scene. There's lots of ways to bring people together Absolutely. without sewer origins. Yeah. I mean we've had lots of fun times in San Diego and we've been <laughs> fully clothed during all of them, yes. you know, like <laughs> yeah, I feel bonded to all of you, and we never had to go inside the sewers. Yeah. 
I do recommend it. I, I think that I, I recommend it. I thought it was good. Uh, I, I know it's. Uh, it seems like it's a craze right now. I mean, with the students at at the school that I work at, uh, they very much enjoy it. At least the ones that can see it. I teach sort of ones that would have to. They would not be able to get in. And uh, what else was I going to say about it? Oh, it's nearly the highest grossing horror film right now. I think it's got a little bit more to catch up to The Exorcist, but it's it's going to make it. And I think I think it's great. You know, horror films, uh, for the most part, are less about suspense and more about gore and things like that, I think, nowadays. But this one, I think, had a great story with it, and it was suspenseful, and, and I thought it was really well-rounded as a movie. That, that's interesting. It's one of the highest grossing ones, but that's kind of goes back to what I was saying before, where Stephen King, like, his stories just resonate, you know, with the general public more so than he just knows what buttons to push with horror more so than, like, some other horror films. And I think that there's also a nostalgia factor, you know, in this, too, because there's lots of people who remember the original mm-hmm. um, it. Yep. And uh, some of the kids who I work with, like, over the summer, they were, like, watching all the YouTube videos, like, related to the movie. And then, like, when the movie was actually out, I'm like, well, do you guys want to go see it? Then they're like, yeah, we're going to see it when it comes out. Then when it was time to, like, go, they're like, oh, well, we're not going to go. We're going to get nightmares. Yeah. I'm like, I knew it. Yeah. And, like, one of the moms was like, yeah, my kid had a clown nightmare last night. He's not going to the movie. Oh, my goodness. As my, uh, my last comment as uh, we wrap this up is, at school, we had this huge... Before school even started, we had this huge relay. We go to a retreat every year, and it was a relay between the grades. And whoever won, whatever three grades won, they got to choose a teacher by draft, and they got to dress that teacher up however you know they wanted to. So the day has come. It was today, actually, that we're recording that the students that chose me in the draft were going to, you know, dress me up. And they hadn't really talked to me about it at all, so I thought, well, I'm probably off the hook on that. But then they were talking to me uh, about that. They were going to dress me up like Pennywise, but I figured it's not going to happen. So 8.05 a.m., you know, keep in mind the bells are going to start ringing at 8.20. They come in, got the clown costume, got the, you know, the makeup and the the hair and everything. And so I put it on and I do it in the, in the way of, of Pennywise, the, the the new Pennywise. And, yeah, I wandered the halls, at, you know, between classes and would go, you float too. You float too. And, like, people are freaking out. Some of the boys were screaming like little girls and ran away from me into the boys' bathroom. Uh, it was pretty hilarious, actually. So <laughs> that was people, my yeah. Was my people are afraid thing. of clowns. Like they that's are. like it's never something that I've understood, but it's like it's a big deal for some people. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are about to get into the main event, and that is Cataclysm. Okay. Shake, shake, shake. Yeah. It's an earthquake. Oh my. Cataclysm. Uh-huh. Cataclysm. You know what's sad about this, and I, I sort of want to dedicate this podcast to the residents and, and, and aid workers down in Mexico City because this is coming at a really relevant time, which is a little scary because Mexico City was rocked by a 7.1 earthquake just a few weeks ago, and I think over 155 people were killed. And so to cover something that is, you know, fictional, but I think also is representative of what happens, these natural events that kill people obviously and really shake up a city it'll be great to to discuss this so certainly my heart and my prayers and thoughts go out to uh, all the people down there in mexico city i wanted to ask you because you actually aren't very proactive in coming on the show as you as you said 
what what made you reach out to ask to be on for Cataclysm? And uh, you you mentioned that it was near and dear to your heart. Why is that? I read it um, as it was coming out, and it was one of the first crossovers that I read as it was coming out because other Batman crossovers like Legacy or Nightfall, I was those were already done and over with when I was reading the books. Like I started reading um, the the very first like current Batman comic that I read new from the shelves was um it was an issue of Robin where um he's he thinks that his friend Ives is being abused and it says Shadow of the Rat on the cover and he's investigating and then it turns out that like his friend is just working at a knockoff of like Chuck E Cheese in the DC universe and um, a few issues later that Genesis issue happened that um, I think you and Bailey covered together where Young L dies and then um. And then, and then we're a few months after that now, and like it's Cataclysm. And again, this was I was into the I was into the Bat books, but I was still relatively new to reading the current ones. And I was reading this as it was coming out, and I was going to the comic shop at the mall, and there was this little newspaper like tie-in that they gave. It was like an issue of Gotham's Zen, and it had like the towers and Gotham falling down, and little fake articles related to Cataclysm. So it ties into my early comic reading experience, and it was just um. I was listening to BTO um, just um, after dropping one of the kids off at school one day and getting breakfast. And I think I figured out listening that like you were coming up to Cataclysm and I was like, oh, that would be fun. So I just like texted you like, hey, can I come on for Cataclysm? It wasn't like this, you know, big plan thing. It was just like kind of spur of the moment like, oh, let me see if she doesn't have anyone on for that one. Well, you know, or yeah. if it's just going to be. If it's just going to be the usual suspects again. Oh my gosh! Hey, I've been solo pretty, pretty much, pr- pretty, pretty. If often by solo now. you mean Pan Pan, oh and my gosh. Shag and Don. I mean, it, it, even those two, they would have to be on like ten times a month to like catch up to Donovan, you know, in the next year. Oh my heavens! Because okay. it was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, my history. This is my history with Cataclysm. I had never read it before. I feel like I've heard about it a lot, especially perhaps when I was reading No Man's Land because I think that was the big, the first big Batman um, crossover story that I had read or event, I guess you would call it. And I know that this has ties into it basically and sort of sets the stage for No Man's Land. And people also, as I was moving on, they would mention like, oh, you're getting close to Cataclysm, you're getting close to Cataclysm. So it's, you know, before I even opened it, I think it had a lot of pressure on it because it seemed like everyone enjoyed it. I will say that I, in particular, I'm not sure what uh, Josh is going to be um talking about or covering but i got the newer trade that had come out in it says 2015 so on the back it says that it is reprinting batman 553 to 554 detective comics 719 to 721 batman shadow of the bat 73 through 74 nightwing 19 and 20 catwoman 56 and 57 robin 52 and 53 though i will say 52 is just like five pages and then it went to the next issue because i think robin was doing some other stuff Azrael 40 the batman chronicles number 12 batman blackgate isle of men number one batman huntress slash spoiler blunt trauma number one and batman arkham asylum tales of madness number one so you because i know that different trades collect different things but this is just what i'm uh going off of do you or what you read josh did you have any added material i uh what i have is uh there's a prelude in detective comics 719 which really the prelude it just comes out to like you know one particular event and then um what I have is Shadow of the Bat 73 is part one. Part two is Nightwing 19. Part three is Batman 553. 
Part four is Asriel 40. Part five is Detective 720. Part six is Catwoman 56. Part seven is Robin 40 or 52, which it's funny because like when I was getting this from the stands, like if you were collecting Cataclysm, you had to like read like the entire issue. And then like it's just referencing Cataclysm at the end. It's kind of like when the CW did that crossover last year with all the shows and like the Supergirl episode really had nothing to do with like the crossover until the very end. Mm. Um, part eight's Blackgate. Part nine is Shadow of the Bat seventy four. Part ten is Batman Chronicles, which I think in the trade they split up those Batman Chronicles stories, so it's all throughout the trade because it's just little like short stories. Uh, part eleven is uh, Nightwing twenty. Part twelve is Batman five fifty four. Part thirteen is Huntress. Thanks for the spoiler. Blunt trauma. <sighs> Part 14 is Detective Comics 721, 15 is Catwoman 57, 16 is Arkham Asylum Tales of Madness, and 17 is Robin, which um, in, in a lot of the crossovers, the Robin issues would finish them up because Robin always came out like at the end of the month. So, oh, like, okay. What, one of the last issues of Night's End was in Robin, yeah. the last issue of Contagion was in Robin, the last issue of Legacy was in Robin. So as a Tim Drake fan, I kind of love that he got to close off a lot of the crossovers mm-hmm. at the time. Okay, well, I guess without further ado, do you want to give the plot recap of what yeah. Batman Cataclysm is? Yeah, we're not going to go panel by panel just because you um, know, you're all nice. Yes, we would. So, yeah. so, in, uh, Detecticon, so we're just going to kind of quickly sum up what's in each part. And I say quickly as in like most of them are just going to have a few sentences. Uh, so there is a prelude in Detective Comics 719, but what it basically comes down to is Dr. Relazzo, who, you know, figures into the story. She's a... Uh, she realizes that an earthquake's coming and uh, she tries to warn her employer who she doesn't know who it is. She kind of has like an unknown benefactor and she calls and just gets the answering machine. And we see that the answering machines in the back cave and that this earthquake is coming. So part one in shadow of the vet, we see the earthquake strike and how it affects Batman, Bullock, Anarchy, Alfred and Babs. And it, it's kind of, it's interesting because uh, Batman and Alfred are very, very quickly like kind of subdued and knocked out. So the rest of the issue most of the action is between Bullock and Anarchy, who are at the mall and have to kind of team up to, um, you know, take down this uh, thug that Bullock was after before this happened. And Bullock was originally trying to arrest Anarchy, and then they wind up working together. And uh, Barbara, who um, this Barbara's played a role in the last few crossovers, but this is like I'd say one of her biggest Batman family roles so far. You know, she um, uh, goes to GCPD, and um, you know, on her way, she sees. Um, a guy trying to dig out his dead wife and she says jackpot no just kidding because she's actually in character here but she very quickly you know like is able to um you know be kind of a guiding light and beacon to everyone so over in part two in nightwing nightwing hears about the quake and gets very worried about gotham he leaves his bartender job mid-shift to help out he winds up helping a group of people stuck on mass transit including a woman and her young son it looks like the boy's about to become an orphan but dick does pull through and save the day in part three, which is Batman, we see the effect of the quake on Lucius Fox and the employees of Wayne Enterprises. And Bruce Wayne uh, fortified all his buildings so that they'd be quake proof. And Lucius is thankful that, like, you know, he bought his home from, like, you know, Bruce Wayne, too. So he knows that his family's safe. But unfortunately, a lot of people in Gotham didn't listen, so they're not doing so well. We see what Gordon was doing during the earthquake, and he's pinned under the bat signal. Babs takes control of uh, the unruly and chaotic GCPD and, you know, gets everyone to start helping. Bullock returns and makes some questionable medical decisions and uh, finds Gordon and unpins him. We get a very great father-daughter reunion, a great uh, Babs and um, Jim moment. Batman saves himself and manages to save Alfred. 
but they're still trapped um, in the Batcave due to the quake. So Batman decides to risk going in the underwater tunnels to check on the outside world. But as he does that, the first Aftershocks hit. In Asriel, which is part four, we're in the middle of an Asriel adventure that I didn't read any of you know, before this. But he and his team have captured Bane, and they're turning them over to Sarah Essen. So that's where she is because, they, you know, like Jim and Babs have been like, we don't know where Sarah is throughout the book and the GCPD. Uh, the quake hits and Bane escapes, but Asriel chases him down. And thanks to an aftershock, Bane is thrown off balance and Asriel is able to capture him again. Um, in part five, Detective Comics, we see that Huntress is on a subway when the quake hits. She changes in the dark to her costume, but a felon on board thinks that he was being stalked by her and acts out starts shooting people and tries to get away. But one of those aftershocks, which you'll be hearing about throughout the story, buries the criminal in rubble. And because he injured Huntress's arm, she's unable to dig him out. And she says that she'd rather lead the people to safety instead. Batman navigates the underwater tunnels um, back in the Batcave, avoiding damage from the aftershocks and barely escaping with his life. When he surfaces, he's horrified to see the state that Gotham's in. Over in part six, Catwoman, Catwoman's robbing a department store, unseen by everyone, when the quake hits. She and the others inside think that it's a terrorist attack. Selina's horrified when she looks out the window and sees the room city. She decides to help the people of the department store. She's unable to save a little girl, which made me sad. And once she's done with her task of saving everyone else, she allows herself to cry about what's been done to her city. Part seven, Robin, which um, in the trades, it only has the last few pages. And, uh, if if you're reading like these issues from the stand you're really confused because he's in europe he's killed lady shiva it's 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 a really bizarre story but all that is he's on a plane and he's telling his dad that he's going to tell him that he's he, he's intending on telling his dad when he gets back to off him that he's robin and he's calling his dad saying that they're going to repair the relationship but as he looks out the window he sees that the city is in ruins and that they're being rerouted to blue haven Part 8, which is Blackgate Isle of the Man. This focuses on a man named Jaron Max, who's uh, he's going to be executed in the middle a uh, minute past midnight. And he claims that he's innocent of these murders that he's being accused of. And his lawyer and his nun are by his side. But he's just like, you know, what good is this going to do me? Um, I need a miracle. The earthquake hits, which Jared thinks this is miracle. The prison floods and uh, some of the prisoners die in their cells. It's really disturbing. Uh, chaos ensues because guards f- are fighting inmates as Jared protects his nun and lawyer. Some of the criminals, like Clue Master, escape across a small land bridge, which is followed up on later. Batman joins in the battle now that he's recovered from his, you know, underwater tunnels. Jared dies saving his nun and lawyer friend, but not before admitting that he did do the murders and that the kids that he killed were actually his. And the nun makes the point that when he died, it was one minute past midnight, but she feels that maybe he did redeem himself in the end. Part 9, Shadow of the Bat, Batman begins helping people. Tim Drake, who was over trapped in Bluehaven, steals a courier bike so he can get back to Gotham. Dr. Rolazzo is trapped, and she thinks she's being rescued, but it turns out to be kidnappers working for an unseen employer. The Gordon father and daughter do continue their rescue efforts. Batman strong arms Penguin into lending his goons for rescue efforts. And we see a mysterious person called the Quake Master make a ransom video demanding $1 million dollars or $100 million, excuse me, or he'll do another earthquake. Part 10 is Batman Chronicles, and it's just a bunch of little vignettes. There's one about trapped people being saved, one where Ra's al Ghul is laughing at the fact that, you know, Gotham's been destroyed, one of Penguin bargaining with, you know, different victims. He's deciding who to save based on who could do a favor for him later on. 
one of Robin back in Gotham helping buried people, but it's being narrated by a guy that like he thinks that Robin's coming to save him, but Robin completely passes him by and the guy presumably dies. It's really sad. Uh, one of crooked cops who um, find an unconscious Two Face and uh, decide to take the money for themselves and like uh, turn Two Face in, claiming that the money's gone. But Two Face turns the tables on them and they're gonna die unless Two Face decides to save them. And he flips the coin and says, "Oh, I love this city." And we see Leslie helping an earthquake orphan. Part 11 and Nightwing, Dick reunites with Babs, and they're about to have a romantic moment, but they get blocked by Tim. Um, the two Robins head to Wayne Manor to see if Alfred, Bruce, and Harold, where Barbara's like, who's Harold, is okay. Tim checks on his dad, um, and we get that father-son reunion, which uh, was kind of playing into a storyline that was going on in Robin. Dick sees Alfred and Harold in the destroyed cave, but they're still worried about Bruce. Uh, Bruce, throughout this story, he's now that it's daytime, he's in one of his disguises, which is Detective Hawk, and he kind of gives Gordon a few code words to know that it's him, like, oh, I'm working the day shift, I usually don't do that. So he's helping Gordon with the rescue efforts, and at the end, the ransom video, which was filmed, is delivered and watched, much to the horrified GCPD. Part 12 in Batman, Batman, you know, realizing the danger of the video, goes to check on Dr. Relazzo and discovers that she's been kidnapped. Batman reunites with the Robins, which makes me wonder how Tim got away from his dad again. And they realize that the Quake Master is basically full of um, dung, dung poo, or whatever you want to call it. The words that he's using, he doesn't know what he's talking about, so his threats are probably empty, but he could still be potentially dangerous. The GCPD and Batman try to trail him to no avail. Even his goons haven't seen his face. In Part 13, Huntress and uh, Spoiler... They meet for the first time at the mall while saving Quake victims. They bond over their outcast status in the Batman family and begin the work together, but Stephanie is slowly put off by Huntress' extreme methods. The Blackgate crooks, including Stephanie's dad, Clue Masker, wreak havoc in the mall, but Arthur convinces Stephanie to let him get away without Huntress' knowledge because she's lethal enough and will kill him. Part 14, Detective Comics. Robin figures out the Quake Master's identity by, by listening to some tapes and figuring out his speech patterns. The GCBD and Robin meet up as they've separately traced the location. While that's happening, the mayor and Gordon are taken hostage. Batman and Nightwing tell the Huntress that she's being too lethal. In part 15, um, we get a Gotham City Sirens prequel where um, while the Batman family's taking care of this Quake Master thing, Catwoman stops Ivy from destroying Gotham with like a potion that's going to make it go green which uh, Catwoman splashes in Poison Ivy's face at the last minute and makes, like, trees grow out of her face. And she's like, don't let them stop growing. Part 16, the Arkham one-shot. There's a new guard who, um, during the quake, um, is captured by the Joker and a bunch of, you know, Killer Croc and friends. And uh, they all want to kill him. So they come up with a contest that whoever tells the scariest story gets to kill him. And at the end, the guard can't decide which story is the scariest. So they all mark up parts of his body and call him the Jigsaw Man. And the experience has driven him insane. And now, after the earthquake's over, he's now an Arkham inmate. And they they finally let his fiance go see him, and she's horrified. Uh, part 17, which is the finale in Robin, Nightwing rescues Gordon and the mayor. Robin defeats the Quake Master, who turns out to be a puppet of the Ventriloquist. And once the Quake Master's defeated, he takes out a Scarface puppet, who also gets defeated. And he's like, help him, he needs a doctor! Uh, speaking of doctors, Bullock and the cops free Dr. Olazo, and she's very happy to see Bullock. Um, <laughs> Oracle's back at her base, which now apparently has power again, and she talks to Alfred, who's at the manor, who's fixing it up with Harold, and 
they think that all's well that ends well, but we get some Batman and the Robins talk on one of the towers and they feel some tremors and there's kind of a this is over dot 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 for now feeling. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully that wasn't wasn't too long. No, no, I mean, there's like no way around because you have to give, I think, enough of a synopsis so people who haven't read it understand what's happening. Well, I was just thinking we could give our overall thoughts on the story and then go into the characters because there are certain um, characters that I really do want to talk about. And I think that this is really character driven. And um, totally. and then, yeah, and if you have any other questions. Well, of course, as we end, I, I do, when I do these big events, I like to compare it with other Batman events that have come before. So we'll do that at the end and then any favorite issues or moments that you have. So, yeah, let's start with your overall thought. I guess this is probably the second or third time you've read this particular story. So what do you, what do you think about the story? What makes it so engaging and, and what makes you keep wanting to come back and reread it? Well, it's also, it's... You mentioned character-driven, and you see basically, you know, you're not fighting, you know, the Joker or a plague or something. This is a disaster, and you see how the situation's, you know, kind of the same for everyone. They're all in the same disaster, but based on who they are, the disaster reveals, like, certain aspects of their personality and how they react to Mm -hmm. it. Like, the way that Huntress deals with it is different than the way that Catwoman deals with it and different than the way that Batman does. But it also, you see some similarities with the characters where, like... I was actually thinking of like, you know, Batman and how upset he was to see his city. And then, you know, Catwoman had a similar reaction. And I th- that occurred to me. I'm like, oh, you know, that's kind of a nice little parallel between them that I don't know if it's intentional, but, um, you know, it's interesting. And then y- you really get some characters, you know, strengths throughout the story like Oracle. I think that this is one of the, you know, better Barbara Gordon stories that we've had so far in the 90s because she really – really, you know, puts her emotions aside and takes control when, you know, the GCBD is really needing the leader. I don't know if her firing the gun kind of made sense, but, you know, <laughs> desperate times. And, you know, she's worried about her dad, but she's putting that aside to, you know, get this work done. And um, she just immediately, without a thought, like, goes into crisis, you know, counselor mode. And I like that. And um, um, it was fun to see different characters interact that didn't interact before, like Huntress and, you know, spoiler mm-hmm. and kind of the little day in the light vignettes were fun too like the death row guy in blackgate and um the arkham guard you see how like everyday citizens in gotham like what this does to them so and and it's also when i was younger and i was reading the batman books i wasn't reading every batman book like i I was reading nightwing and robin and like a few of the others but i was not reading asriel so like during these crossovers it was kind of fun to see like what was going on in the other books. I'm like, Oh, Asriel's currently in this adventure with Bane. And like, and as a Robin reader, I was wondering how confusing it was for people that were just picking up cataclysm to like, just open this book and see Robin like over it, who had super speed powers over like a dead Shiva body. And like, dead Shiva body. <laughs> and then like, if you're not reading Nightwing, you're wondering what this whole thing with Tad is and stuff like oh, that. Oh yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Luckily, that was, yeah. Yeah, I, like I said, there was a lot of pressure coming in on this because people kept telling me how great it was, and I thought, oh boy, let's see. And to a certain extent, it reminded me a little bit about Contagion because it's sort of something that Batman couldn't really control, and so I wondered how it was going to differ from it and how I was going to see Batman react to it. And what I really liked about it, actually, is it's funny because it's called Batman Cataclysm, but I felt like Batman really took a back seat 
in this. I, I felt like his screen time was pretty low compared to other people, and I really liked that. I liked that you got to see different heroes, heroes work together that haven't worked together. The communication with Batman is down, so they're on their own. So it's less of you know him giving orders and them trying to figure out what they need to do for themselves. And then you do see the ordinary people. You see the people at Arkham, at Blackgate, things like that. And it was just a very different way of, of telling a story than I, I felt like we've seen so far. And uh, the earthquake, as I said, you know, this was, I, I guess I was reading it before, during, and after the Mexico City earthquake, and I thought, oh my goodness. And then that puts everything into perspective. And it's interesting also just because Gotham is, in my opinion, also a, a huge character in just the Batman mythos and something that Batman really cares for, even though it's just despicable and always lets him down, but he always comes back to it. And then here it is broken up, you know, in, in, in almost irreparable damage. And then what can you do and, and how can you go from there? And, and I think there are glimmers of hope and really wonderful moments that come through, like the Bullock and the anarchy situation where they, you know, help each other out and you wouldn't expect that to happen. Or Catwoman who was going to go away and then she looked out and her heart sank because she saw her Gotham City broken and she ended up helping. So I think there are just, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I think that was a great assessment that you get to see almost the true heart and the true character of all these people because in this in the face of this tragedy you you see who they truly are in in their actions which i thought was really wonderful so i think it does live up to the hype just very uh very happy about yeah, so I, I do want to save Babs because I because I, I certainly recognize that you were talking about her and I really agree with you, but I do want to save her to talk about more thoroughly. So let's go through some of these characters and how they're portrayed. And I guess we'll start with Batman because it is Batman Cataclysm. Uh, what were your thoughts on his role in the story? Do you think it was, do you agree with me that maybe he took a bit of a backseat? Not that he wasn't doing anything, but just that yeah, we don't we no, don't totally. see him. Oh, okay. Do you think that was appropriate? Do you think that worked well for this story? I think it did because, you know, this was a good way to spotlight everything. And even though he took a back seat, there was still some good Batman moments like, you know, him. Um, you really feel the struggle when he's going through the tunnels. And at the end where he's so desperate, he's like, I don't care that my mask is off. I got to come up for air. And um, he's kind of dazed at the end of part one. And he's about to, you know, follow into the chasm. And um it's realizing that Alfred's in trouble and that needs help that brings Batman out of his, um, you know, kind of trance and gets him to save himself so he can save Alfred. I love that because, you know, that's that, that's a very even though Batman's not in this a lot when he's in this, you know, you see some, you know, awesome stuff with him. And I loved him um, being Detective Hawk, you know, and working with Gordon during the day. Mm -hmm. You know, that was that, that was good, too. And um there was some good Batman moments like him, you know, telling Penguin, you know, you're going to help me. And if you don't, I'm going to make your life a living hell. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was pretty, pretty smart of him because I, I wasn't even sure what he was thinking about. He when he thought, I have an idea of how I can help, the, you know, the people. And what a great idea to go to basically a criminal who would be able to reach who could have his hands in all sorts of situations and use him for that. And I think he knows mm -hmm. that he can't really prey upon his love of humanity because that's not really Penguin. I think 
you know, his his colors or his true feathers have always been shown, but to, to use that. And then we also see it later on, whereas Bruce Wayne, he contracts those four, or actually it's probably more like six individuals um, to go help people out in a, in a collapsed building and, and break into the elevator and everything. So he's, he's using these people, which is uh, amazing, and I'm very happy that they follow through with that, especially with the no-killing and everything on that one. So it's just weird. It's weird. I can't really put my finger on like how best to um, explain the feeling that you know Batman you don't see Batman a lot but I think there's so much other stuff going on in other character moments that it's not like you're missing him it's not like you're bored and like oh man where's Batman and quite frankly this was uh, 17 books 18 if you count the prelude oh, so gosh. yeah <laughs> so, there's a lot so going on. I mean I think that even like with not seeing Batman a lot we saw Batman plenty and Batman did plenty absolutely absolutely which character would you like to do next let's do thanks for the spoiler because there's <laughs> actually there's actually an interesting thing okay. um so um open up to that page where she's this isn't some trick on Donovan like I know that you think I'm setting up some like Donovan joke or something here but like always um so the page where um it's at the beginning where she says it was a close one diary um, as which is it says that's page 12 of that issue. Like open up to there. I'll see if you can find it because there's something I want to note about that panel. Yes, I found it. OK, so um, what is she holding? She's holding a child who's holding an alligator or something. how many. So how many how many children is she holding? One. She's actually holding two children. Is she pregnant she at this point? She's pregnant and she doesn't know it. With is that guy at the beginning her boyfriend? Yep, that's her boyfriend oh and gosh. they and they what break a up. Dud. Well, like, and this is that boyfriend. He appears later in the Robin title, but this is that guy's first appearance. And um, when she's she actually pregnant, holding two children, you're terrible. She's well, she's pregnant because um, it's a few issues after this in Robin where like. She and Robin finally get together, and she reveals that she's pregnant. And uh, I think that this is the first time that you've dealt with spoiler in in the in like the flashback section of this because you've dealt with her and um on BTO and like the when you do the present day stories. Right. But I don't think you ever did. Uh, so um, I think that that would be a fun uh, episode to do one time. If like if you have Don and I on and we do those original um that original spoiler three parter from Detective, yeah, where Stephanie first appeared. Yeah. But in any case, um. She and she and Robin officially get together in a few issues, but then she finds out she's pregnant and she references Robin thinks that he's the father for like a second. And she's like, dude, like we just made out. You can't get me pregnant that way. And she says that it was this guy, Dean, and that he left her during the earthquake. So because this is when they're breaking up, like presumably she's pregnant now and she doesn't realize it. And uh, a few years later, he shows up um in an issue of Robin and he's like, Hey, I heard you had a baby, mm. you know, is it mine? And she says, I gave it up. He's like, Oh good. There's nothing to keep us from getting back together. Oh and she knees him in the balls. And like Stephanie's mom comes out and she's like, honey, hit him again. He's getting up. <laughs> oh my word. Uh. Yeah. So he's, he, 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 he's a real jerk. And, um, at the time, whenever Stephanie appeared on Robin, we would get these narration things from her, like with her diary. Okay. Um, so, so that was kind of like a consistent thing mm-hmm. among uh, spoiler stories. But yeah, this um, – so there is kind of some importance in this because this is the prequel to her being pregnant and that we see her and her baby daddy breaking up this issue. Mm. And of course, like, you know, he wants to leave and she wants to stay and help. So, yeah. you know, there's that too. And I kind of love the contrast with her and Huntress, how they bond over the fact that, yeah, we both work with Robin and he's condescending the both of us. Yep. And he knows our identities and we don't know his. But then – 
later on they kind of see because spoiler was all would would complain the robin too about playing by the rules she'd be like there's an issue around this time where they save a convenience store from being robbed and stephanie takes a soda and tim's like you're gonna pay for that right and she's like are you kidding we just saved the whole store and he's like that's not the point stephanie you know what's to separate us from them and she's like ah fine and like puts money on the counter so she's she doesn't she's not in love with robin's rules either but like so at first she bonds with huntress over that but then she sees just how extreme the Huntress is. And I love towards the end of that issue where, um, you know, Arthur Brown's playing with her like he's she's going to kill your old man. And Stephanie looks into Helena's eyes and like sees that like crazed look. And she like realizes, OK, my dad is right. And um, you know, I thought that the issue and we'll probably talk more about Huntress, you know, later on. Absolutely, too, but, yeah. you know, I thought that that was interesting too, just contrasting that even though these two girls have a lot of difference, you know, similarities mm-hmm. and. They both don't like the Batman family rules. Both of them draw the line at different areas. And um, Stephanie was, again, a lot more morally ambiguous back then than she – although then again now she's running around with anarchy in the current detective comics. Yeah. But, um, you know, she was a different kind of a girl before, you know, um, her uh, Brian Q. Miller title. Mm-hmm. So she, she's had a long, interesting story. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Maybe someday someone will do like a podcast about it for TBU, like the spoiler cast or something or – we should have Ben do it with the thanks for the spoiler podcast. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, or, or, or you can do it and just do it with that Ben voice of yours. Like, thanks for the spoiler. <laughs> this was actually one of my favorite issues of the whole story. And it is because of the spoiler and Huntress interactions. And I think, oh boy, uh, there's so much going on here. And, you know, part of it is certainly this boys club and how very hard it is to get in and and I sympathize with it because Barbara Gordon went through that. And, you know, she's a member of the, the boys club now, I guess, which is more inclusive. Um, but, it's, but yeah, you know, they both you struggling with it. But then Huntress, which we will talk about more. She might be my, my next person to pick. Almost being like this negative influence over her and saying, you know, you need to cut out of that and, and get rid of those rules. And, I don't know, be more of a free spirit and, and do as justice commands you to do and just the emotion also of of having your father on the scene and him being the one that you're you're tracking down i think was really interesting as well so it was just it was chaotic i think the issue was really chaotic with all of the stuff that was happening because you're not only trying to save people from the earthquake but you also have these recent blackgate escapees trying to get in and get money and everything and you've got these hulking guys like all you know all colors of the rainbow almost like these huge guys and then you have uh, smaller ones and ones that may not be as capable and then you've got another guy that's coming and <laughs> to attack because he doesn't like arthur brown so there's like all this stuff happening is chaotic but it's awesome and then yeah the at the bitter end i think that was an amazing moment not only that she was saving her father from potentially being killed by huntress but almost also like giving him a, a chance again, even though, you know, who, who's to say how he's going to use that? But, um, you know, you do have to sort of weep a little bit for, for bro- broken families, whether they're fictional or not. And, and the fact that this is what Stephanie's been, been growing up with. So uh, strong characterization. And, and I certainly feel for her. I've, I felt for her, especially when I read her as Robin, because I just feel like that's unfair what happened to her. But no, I, I thought that she uh, 
did a good job here. And I think she was paired with someone who was really interesting to be paired with. And interesting footnote, too, both of these girls become Batgirl at one point. They sure do. And they both wear the same Batgirl costume because Stephanie's first Batgirl costume right. is the one that Huntress wore in yep. No Man's Land. Yeah. So. Yeah. Though I'm sure she was doing it out of respect for Cass rather than out of sort of a legacy situation. But yeah. Yeah, I don't. I don't even think she was aware that Helena yeah. wore that suit first. I, I I think that DC forgets that. Like I, I forget sometimes that. Oh yeah, that wasn't Helen. That that was Helena's suit. Wasn't yeah. It? So let's actually move on to to Huntress. Interesting character, uh, for sure. And I think this is someone that I keep coming back to, uh, and I keep coming back to her and her ethics and how she fits into to Batman's family. And I think this really started in Contagion, especially because she's been trying to be on her best behavior and follow Batman's rules. And here it's just, it seems to be really difficult for her. And I almost uh, sympathize with her because especially her issue when she's in the subway, you know, she's going after this guy and he ends up killing someone who, you know, this innocent bystander, there's no reason why. And so she does a pretty bad thing by leaving the guy trapped. So she's basically going to leave the robber murderer uh, he, he's going to die. Uh, and then, of course, as I said, she's almost like this this bad influence, this bad Jiminy to, to Stephanie. And she does end up later meeting up with Batman and Nightwing, I think, is there as well. And she sort of starts yelling at them and saying, you know, I'm, I'm done with you. And which was interesting. It was an interesting moment because Batman, while he could have engaged in that conversation and Nightwing almost prompted him to, basically said, we don't have time for this which I thought was really interesting. But, what you know, oh, oh man, I, I just think she's she's a wonderful character because of how complicated she is. She's not black and white. What what are your thoughts on her development, and especially in this, you know, what, what did you think of her initially when she was coming out and trying to be on her best behavior in Contagion? And do you feel like this <laughs> was... I mean, she did try. She was listening to them, kind of. Yeah, um, but, she she she, she yeah. tries, but then, like in the other breaths, she'll like impale people with arrows, yeah. and Batman will be like, "You know, you don't need to do that." And yeah. she's like, "Screw you and your rules." Yeah. The city's being like, you know, torn apart from us. You know, like look around. And every once in a while, Donovan will like text me, like Huntress, like you know, doing something horrible to someone, and he'll be like, "And Stella wonders why Batman doesn't trust her." I know. Which well, is, yeah, that was... which is. <laughs> It's kind of an inconsistent uh, thing because yeah. during this time period, he was sponsoring her for, like, membership in the Justice League. But then, like, in his own book, like, he doesn't want her operating. But then in Justice League, he's like, you know, I think the Huntress is A-OK to join. And it's like, you know, that's what you get with the whole different writers thing. But the next few years with Huntress are going to be interesting because this relationship of hers with Batman and um, clashing over the methods and Huntress trying to play things his way – that's going to come to a head in the next few years, especially with No Man's Land. No Man's Land, like, that's, there's really going to be some development there, and um, it it's going to push their relationship to the brink. And, um, and, and you see a lot of good things coming from Huntress in that story to the point where uh, – I mean, you know now that, like, she doesn't die at the end of that. But people thought that, like, that story was leading towards her death. And at one point there's a cliffhanger where, like – we know that a member of the Batman family is going to die in the last issue of No Man's Land, and there's a gun up to the hunter's head from the Joker, and you think, this is it. She's going to, like, save the day and die in the process, but unfortunately it was someone else, which, you know, you'll get to when you do that story. But, well, uh, I know it is, but Don, I was just talking to him this past weekend, 
And he said that originally <clears throat> DC, uh, thank you, DC had planned to kill her off, but then they switched gears. I hadn't heard that, but um, it wouldn't surprise me because that No Man's Land story is definitely like it's almost like the huntress is like last stand throughout it, you know, and yeah. like, and her becoming Batgirl and like trying to like play by the Batman family's rules. And then she just goes in the opposite direction. Like she tells Batman off and she's like, you know, I'm not going to be the, what you want me to be. Stop asking. But I mean, right now the status quo in the Batman books, especially among the Chuck Dixon books is that, you know, you'd have like huntress, like, you know, really hurting people with her arrows and Batman being like, I don't think that it's a good idea. You're being lethal. And her being like, well, I think you need to be more lethal. And we would just kind of go around in that circle. And I remember at the time thinking that this was a really big deal. Her, I felt letting that guy die in the rubble. But every time I reread the story, I see, oh, it's not like she was letting him die. She was saying, like, you know, I can't help you because of yeah. what you did to my arm. Yeah. But then when I read it again this time, she says, I'm sure that these people could help you, but I'd rather lead them to safety. So I guess she could have had somebody try and help yeah. them. but. Do you feel do you feel like she could have saved that guy either like by some action or another? I, I, I think that saving someone is always possible. But, yeah, I think she chose, I guess, wh- where she preferred to put her her remaining strength. And, you know, I think in the back of her mind, it was a bit of a, you know, middle finger to you because this is what you did. So this is what you get. Do you, is this just the trajectory of her character that we I mean, is she sort of devolving and she's tried, but she's just done with it now, and she's just going to be whatever she's going to be. Was this what you would expect reading it depends Contagion? On, it depends on the story. Okay. I mean, to be honest, like, because sometimes she's, you know, lamenting the fact that, you know, oh, if only Batman would accept me. Sometimes she's like, well, I don't want him to accept me. But maybe that's not inconsistent as much as, like, human nature. Because yeah. sometimes, you know, we are like that with people, like, oh, why can't I fit in with the group? And then other times you're like, screw the group. You know, if they don't want me, then like, you know, they're the ones that are wrong. And then another day you might be like, I want them. Uh, so yeah. it's, I think it depends upon the given situation. So you don't think that Batman trusts her? Uh, that's a very, I mean, obviously he doesn't trust her. But then like, on the other hand, over in Justice League at this time, he's sponsoring her for membership. Yeah. So I mean, I guess canonically he does trust her or maybe he's doing that because he wants a closer I kept on her. But from what I recall, he eventually fires her from Justice League because she like almost killed a guy. Um, I wasn't reading the title, but I heard about this. But I I did read the issue where like he gets her to join because like that's also it was the Secret Files and Origins issue. I guess you you're going to cover in the next few months because it was um, I I, I thought that it would have been with your last episode with. Yeah, apparently they they were published like out of continuity order. So. I mean, I guess I just see trust and acceptance as two different things. And I think because she's allowed to do any sort of work that there's, I mean, he lets her go and she's helping people out. So I don't know about that. So maybe when Don's on, we can fight over it, I guess. Well, it's your, I I think I could talk about that character for a very long time because I I think there's just a lot to to get into but this is not you're gonna be talking about her for a long time because the next like one just once you get to no man's land which uh, that'll be an interesting thing for bto to cover (laughs) it's uh it's uh things are gonna get really interesting with huntress there yeah so where your pick next i think yeah because i picked huntress okay let's see let me look at these lists of characters i would like to talk about robin because um i I have some familiarity there i was reading the title so 
from that last episode that you did with Bailey, you know, um, where like he, you know, young Al, I almost said he lets young Al die. He doesn't let him die. He tried to save him, but that actually really messed him up. So like, he kind of like goes on this, like, um, he goes to Europe with Nightwing to like, you know, there's a, you know, thing involving the general where they have to fight him. And afterwards, like he's been thinking about giving up being Robin because of the events of Genesis and young Al dying. And he decides to stay in Europe to like figure out his life. But, the problem is he's a 14-year-old boy who has a dad at home. He can't just run off like Dick Grayson does. So, of course, his dad is like – there's issues of like Ariana wondering where Tim is and um, Jack Drake wondering where Tim is. And like because when you're 14 years old, you can't leave home. So like he's – everyone's wondering where he is and he's off in Europe and it's this whole storyline. He gets involved in this thing with Lady mm-hmm. Shiva. So Cataclysm is kind of um, – I put my phone on do not disturb and it's still the beep thing. Cataclysm is kind of the next step in that Tim Drake story where like he is tired of lying to his dad. So he like I was a little angry reading this because like he vows like in this story like he's going to tell his dad the truth once and for all. And I remembered, oh, yeah, he says this a lot around that time and he never does because for the next like few years in Robin, he'll always be like, you know, dad, I promise never to run away again. And then he runs away again. Like it's going to happen a lot. And it's, you know. It it happens in no man's land. It happens when Stephanie has her baby, and then to the point where his dad just says has has had it and like puts him in boarding school. And uh, he and his dad were kind of having a falling out around that time because um, um, his dad had grounded him because he thought that he was trying to sexually take advantage of his girlfriend Ariana. Mm. I don't know if you, I, I think you you and Don talked about that story, but it's um and Don and I make fun of that issue because Jack Drake gets really like angry and pulls a TV out of the wall. Uh, and he looks just crazy. It's uh, an issue of Robin where he gets grounded. And but Tim comes home and like, you know, and sees his dad and they're all hugs because, you know, like each of them were worried about the other. But then I'm, you're Jack. Imagine you're Jack Drake, your 14 year old son. You know, you're having problems with your relationship. You ground him and he runs away and he calls you and he says he has something to tell you. He's sorry. You're going to fix your relationship. Then there's this natural disaster. You don't know if he's dead or not. And he shows up at the house. You guys hug. Are you going to let him out of your sight? Of course. Because, like, I'm wondering how Tim, like, just went and became Robin without Jack Drake noticing. Because it's not like he can say, I'm going to school or I'm going to go visit Ives or Ariana at this point. Because it's it's cataclysm. You know, he's not going anywhere. And Jack Drake's not going to let him go anywhere. Is he like, I'm going to sit in my room for a little while. Like, I just don't know how after he, you know, sees um his dad again he gets to go out you know whatever (laughs) yeah it bothers me that he doesn't want oracle to know his secret identity yeah Uh, i think that's i think that's kind of and i think we talked about this on another episode it's weird because she already knows that you know who bruce and dick are like why can't she know who tim is like what's the harm in that Mm -hmm. what is that gonna hurt and this carries on for years in robin and there's an issue of robin in like the early 2000s where oracle just you know, like Tim, she's helping Tim track down a classmate. Mm-hmm. She's like, so how do you know this guy? And he's like, oh, I can't tell you, Oracle. It's a secret. And she says, okay, Tim, and like hangs up the phone. And he's like, Alfred, she called me Tim. And Alfred's like, well, it's kind of a wonder that she to the, 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 that she let you get away with like not, you know, not knowing this long. Yeah. Like, don't worry about it. So, you know, you get the point that like maybe she's just humoring him. But I don't think it, if you know that Bruce Wayne is Batman – I don't think it's hard to figure out that Tim Drake is Robin yeah. because 
you know, she knows that Jason Todd is dead and she's like, okay, well, there's another Robin. Have any other young boys gone to live with Bruce Wayne recently? And Tim Drake lived with Bruce Wayne for a little while after um, his uh, mom died and his dad was hospitalized. So you would think that she would reverse engineer it and uh, presumably that's what she did. But it, I don't know. It's that that was kind of a weird thing for me that like Tim didn't want Oracle to know his secrets. It's sad for me because they have – the most interactions right now of Oracle to any Batman family member. It's usually, she's usually interacting with him above anybody else. And so I feel like there's that relationship there. And I don't know if he can't, he can't broach the non-digital relationship. But yeah, I'm not really sure what that is. Because clearly, I guess it's a trust issue of some sort. And he was a little, I mean, think about it though in terms of Young Justice. Remember, he never like took off his mask for them and they got kind of annoyed at that but that's that's different because those guys like they're not part of the batman like oracle already knows everyone else's secrets yeah if she didn't know bruce and dick's secret i would feel differently yeah and and tim's justification a lot of the time says if you know who i am then you can figure out who bruce is so like he was protecting his identity for the purpose of protecting bruce's which was actually a big uh point between him and spoiler because he couldn't reveal his identity to her Uh, and then batman went ahead and did it without his permission and that created a lot of tension too because he's like that was my thing to reveal to her and i was and i was not doing it because i was protecting you and you you know like that was a very big boundary breaking issue you shouldn't have done that to me yeah i just i i think he's the weakest character in this particular storyline may i guess maybe he doesn't have much screen time but the, what he does, it's just disappointing. I, I think I, I didn't like the fact that he shirks off his duty at the particular mission where I think they're like um, rappelling down into the cave. And I understand he, he was worried about his dad. Yeah, Although then again, you compare that to Bab, she was worried yeah, about her dad. And I was, she stuck with her. Yeah, mission. and remember how she tells all the GCPD like she has that little speech and says, "I know that we have people we care about, but we need to think about like the the bigger things and then." That way we can help out those that we care about. And so I, I just felt like it was it was a bit of a selfish move because he could have been, um, his, you know, eye on the mission and helping other people. He is a kid, though, so you can't excuse him. But I just felt like he was the weakest character in this particular story. Well, and he does say, Dick, I'm worried about Bruce, but you're here. So, like, I mean, I think that he felt that Dick could have had it handled, you know, whatever was going yeah. on. That, that it, it wasn't necessarily a two-person job. and. You know, there's times where I'm at work and doing something and I realize this is a one person job. Like, you know, you can go if you need to take care of something or I'd like to go so I can take care of something. It's different circumstances, but there there are some parallels there I I can see. Yeah. I'd like to move on to let's save Quake Master and Babs towards the end. I'd like to talk about the doctor, Dr. Jillian (laughs) Morawatso. Do we have we seen her? Before this story, like, do we get set up? Because throughout the story, we hear all multiple mentions of um, she was instrumental. Well, ba- Batman, well, Bruce Wayne believed her and everything. And so because of that, he designed uh, all of the Wayne holding buildings differently. Is this just something that was made for this story or does she have history beyond this? I'm 90% sure that it was just for the story, okay. but like it's, it's possible I missed it, but like there is the prelude, um, which was in, um, detective comics 719 right. where you are introduced to her uh-huh. and they kind of establish some of that. But yeah, it's, um, I, 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 I think she was just for this story okay. and, um, 
she's kind of drawn differently, like, you know, in that issue of Robin than she is, like, the rest of the story, too. Yeah. And and for a hostage, she's kind of, like, really relaxed, I noticed. Like, when Bullock, like, comes to save her, she's like, she she doesn't act like she feels she's in any danger. She's like, oh, it's about time, that annoying puppet, you know? Yeah. Like, huh? Come here, sugar. Oh, my goodness. Well, at least it wasn't Fergie, that little perverted puppet, and Gil Simone's around. Ferdy, I mean. Does it make sense that Bruce put stock in her? I mean, I think a lot of people would call her a crackpot, but he believed her. Well, and I think that, you know, you mentioned that Batman doesn't do a love story. I think that that's one of the things is um, you do see that Bruce Wayne, you know, was very proactive in, like, you know, realizing the danger of this. And um, people like Lucius Fox, you know, um, credit him. It's like, you know, because of Bruce Wayne, my family is still alive. Mm. And, like, the Wayne buildings are safe and even Oracle's tower, you know, was, um, earthquake proof. So, um, so I, I think it just shows that, you know, Batman's prepared for everything and his utility belt, but as human Bruce Wayne, he wants to prepare for everything too. And he wants to keep the people who he cares about safe, like Lucius Fox and Lucius Fox's family. So, yeah, I think that that's what that speaks to with the doctor, you know, Relazzo thing, you know, that Bruce isn't gonna, you know, and, and it's it's meant to big up Bruce Wayne that like oh nobody believed her but Bruce Wayne did you know just like meant to show that like you know he's not a dismissive guy or anything mm-hmm. except when it comes to Jim Carrey and um you know Batman Forever of course well that causes villains creation so yeah, yeah. I thought she um I I don't know if I have too much to say about her but it it certainly seems like the story revolves around her very big moments anyways this whole she's the one that's like desperately calling the bat cave even though she doesn't know she's calling the bat cave is that in the trade her calling the bat cave yes okay interesting yeah it was she was up on a hill and she's like listening to things and she finds out there's like a quake and these kids come up and talk to her and then all of a sudden she's like oh my goodness and then calls the bat cave but batman's not there yeah and then you know it always goes back to her and the designs and everything and then of course she's kidnapped and she's the one feeding quake master all of the scientific know-how and she gives clues so she's actually she i mean she is smart she's not a crackpot she knows her stuff and she's also giving clues in these messages that quake master is recording so that bat man's able to uh decipher what's going on so uh for a small character she she certainly has uh great importance your turn let's do nightwing okay um, and actually shipper spotlight um oh, you know boy. this is um i originally was going to say this is the first time that dick and babs have been in the same room since you know um that 1980s story all my enemies against me but then i realized after i made that note when we were playing this episode oh wait they they're in the same room in Nightwing Annual One, which is um, the story where Dick marries that yep. like fake murder. The Black Widow. And also, I, I found I was doing these articles for Dust, and there's a story, an Oracle story, in like a random issue of Showcase from like I think 1994 that takes place during Prodigal, where like Dick as Batman like visits Oracle. Okay. But you know, even though this it, this isn't significant in that case, like this is the first time in Dick's title. Where they're in the same room, because in his title, they've always been Skyping. So, you know, sure. they're in the same room, you know, here and they have a moment. And I like, you know, Barbara's being Barbara and she's like, you know, being all like, you know, this is what's happening with this. You know, everything's taken care of. And Dick's like, Barbara, let's just enjoy each other for a moment. I, I just died on your arms tonight. Must have been something you said. I just died on your arms tonight. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, and she's kind of getting into it. And then Tim's like, I'm sorry if I'm interrupting anything, which is uh, Tim and Barbara's, you know, first face to face meaning. I, I love how friendly she is to them there, too. But, you know, uh, but just talking about, you know, Dick, too, is um, Dick's title was, you know, like a big seller at this time. And the Scott McDaniel, Chuck Dixon team, like they were getting rave reviews um, in like stuff like Wizard and the Comic Press. And I didn't like Scott McDaniel's art as a kid, but like now looking back i see there's a lot of great stuff in it like that issue where nightwing's saving the people from the bus and you're seeing that little frog knight like going out like the artwork's very good and um i was used to reading nightwing you know and stuff like the titans because that was my introduction to nightwing you know when i first got in the comics the titans back issues so i'm used to him fighting like you know trigon the terrible and these cosmic threats so it was very, very different for me to see him like do something as mundane as rescuing people from the subway. But the story and the way that Chuck Dixon writes it, it's very – it draws you in and you get worried. Like you really want Nightwing to save this kid's yeah. mom. And you're wondering, you know, like what if what if he what if he doesn't? Because there's times where people do fail in, you know, Cataclysm like Catwoman and that little girl. So, you know, you are worried, you know, like what if he doesn't pull through? And you're cheering, you know, like for him to succeed and he does and – it's great. And um, but you do see his emotions for Barbara, because when he's kind of going over everyone's status, you know, uh, when he gets to Barbara, that's when he, you know, bangs on the council and says, damn, because he's really, really worried about her. His feelings are, you know, kind of growing there. And because Chuck Dixon was kind of writing everything at the time, like Detective Comics, Nightwing and Robin, I did like the crossover because I was reading Nightwing's adventures in Europe at the time. And Dick was the one who dropped him off there. So I like Nightwing referencing at least him safely away in Europe. So I did like in the 90s the Batman titles being all interconnected. Mm-hmm. I mean, aside from that, there's not really much to say about Nightwing's characterization. But, you know, I just – do you think he's annoyed when the kid calls him Batman? I mean, he doesn't correct him. I know that that happens to Spider-Man well, he, a lot and it annoys Spider-Man. He knows that it's not important yeah. to, to correct him. Well, you know, when that happens to Spider-Man, it annoys him. Because they're like, oh, Iron Man, or whatever they call him in, like, cartoons and stuff. I think he knows where his place is now. I think he's sort of accepted. I think there was probably a, a, a point in time where that would have been hard for him. But I think he's really grown into his own. So I think he's pretty confident in who he is. I uh, I agree with you about how, you know, just the, the deft skill of, of Chuck Dixon as writer and, and, yeah, really being on the edge of my seat reading that and wondering what's going to happen. Another wonderful thing about this whole story is that I think you see the humanistic qualities of these heroes. Um, they're all street-level heroes. They don't have powers. But I think sometimes it seems like they're doing more than is conceivable for a human being. But here I I think of the Catwoman scene where she has to take a break and then, you know, she'll say like, but I'm going to keep going. And then in this particular instance, you see like Nightwing getting fatigued because he has to keep climbing up and then going down and he's not carrying his own weight. He's got another weight. And, and, you know, talking about that, you're going to save my mom. And he said, but mom took a high number. And I was like, oh, yeah. like, you know, even the mom is courageous I know. and like, wants to yeah. save people. Yeah, wonderful times, yeah. But, yeah, I always pick up on, you know, when he mentions Barbara's name when he's not with her. Um, the last time that this was similar was in Nightwing Annual 1 because 
he didn't want Barbara to be at that fake wedding. He was upset with that. And so w- whenever he mentions her name, you sort of have to take notice and, and how it's phrased and everything. But that moment, oh, my gosh. What my, you know, be still my, my shipping heart. Just just very, uh, very beautiful. We've been d- dancing back and forth between them. Of course, they have this flirtation. They're able to just uh, be fun to each other and, and joke around. But then there are also, like, serious moments that, there's usually a silent panel afterwards because they're both considering what has happened. Um, and that's happened a couple of times in, in Dixon's run. So this was just another And compare thing. that to the story that we're going to cover later tonight in the current books. Right. Yep. Yep. So, oh, man. Yeah, it was just a beautiful moment and, and just uh, just warmed warmed my heart. I guess we, we'll we'll tackle them together because they're, they're smaller, but I, I think it'll... I, what are you, what? What? I was doing like a tackle noise. Oh, okay. Um, Catwoman, and then also uh, the GCPD officers that we see. So I guess two different ones will tackle them at the same time. <laughs> yeah, Catwoman, her book was very separated from like the rest of the Batman family at this time. It, it, it's really weird how like in the 90s, she was almost divorced from like the Batman characters. And even in the crossovers, like if she would participate, she wasn't like really with the Batman family much like in legacy. Like they don't even know that like she's in like that prison, you know, yeah. that they're at. So, but I, I, I did like this though, because it's, you saw like she was doing her own thing. She has her own desires, you know, the steel and everything, but she's still humanistic at heart. You know, she wanted to help the people and she was upset about seeing the city. And, um, that moment never struck me too much until like I was reading it now. And I was thinking, you know, that's a very similar reaction to what Batman had. And like, you could kind of see that, like, you know, one of the reasons why they're together a lot in the comics and why they're, you know, kind of engaged now is because of stuff like that. Like, there is some similarities between them and um, their personalities and that. And that was sad when the little girl died. Yeah, it was sad. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think, again, it's a, it's a heart-wrenching moment for her to see what has happened to the city. And I think you get a, a deeper look into her character and her heart to see that she was impacted by it because i think maybe as readers you only thought that she cared about the diamonds and the jewels and she was just living there but i guess she actually cares about it which is interesting so there are some similarities to batman certainly catwoman's evolved a lot in like the decades prior to this because like you know there was a point until a certain time in the 70s where like you know she would like the joker and two-face and riddler she'd have her own henchmen and she would like put batman in these death traps and around the bronze age when she became bruce wayne's on again off again girlfriend they kind of put a stop to that and when she became evil again post-crisis they kind of changed her where like she just wanted to steal stuff she never really wanted to kill batman she would just try and like you know hurt him to like stop him but she would never try and like destroy the city or anything like that like she became more morally ambiguous and then when they gave her own title obviously to make her sympathetic they moved her even more to like, you know, the anti-hero side from villain side. So she's very much a different character here than she was in like the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And then she will be again under Brubaker too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then now she's a bird of prey. Yeah. So. What, what do you think about her and Ivy and that issue? <laughs> I have to double check this, but I, I think, and I'm not 100% sure that this is their first post-crisis meeting. Oh, okay. So, um, it, and it's interesting now because they're, you know, Gotham City Sirens together and Birds of Prey together mm-hmm. because there's that issue where, um, 
you know, that we're going to cover later today where they Netflix and chill. And it, that's not a euphemism for sex. They're actually going to Netflix and chill and watch that's nature documentaries. That's because she's dating Harley Quinn. Yeah. Well, and also, you know, in, in the Gotham show that we used to cover, they, like, you know, were kind of roommates sometimes. Oh, yeah. That that's Barbara right. Teen's apartment. Pepper, right? And uh, Ivy Pepper, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you know what's happened with her since you've left the show? No. They changed actresses, I know that. Yeah, she, like, she fell into the sewer and got touched by someone that makes you, like, age. So, like, she came out like a hot adult. Oh, dear. Because they they wanted to put her in sexy situations. Okay. But, um... <laughs> but that still means that she's a kid, like, in her spirit, though. Just because she... Yeah. That's, like, what happened to... Isn't that how Jordan, who had a relationship it's, with that one person who was 12, but she was, like, in a 20-year-old body? It's it's actually very creepy to me. Yeah. Like, and the, I, I I was very disturbed whenever Gotham would have her like be in situations with adults where like she wouldn't have sex with them, but she would be in situations with them. And I was like, please don't do this, Gotham. Yeah, it's interesting too because Selina does save the city, and like you know she doesn't really get any credit for that, and Batman doesn't even know that she did it. And um, it's a very different relationship with her and Ivy then than it is now. And um, so that that was interesting reading from a historical context. And I, I, I do wonder how Bullock was there because where the continuity is kind of ambiguous because he's supposed to be like – especially if you're reading this in order of like part one, part two, part like he's um he's at Robin with Quakemaster, you know, at Quakemaster's uh, yeah. hideout now. Uh, so. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, but speaking of Bullock, what, what were your thoughts on the GCPD officers, Jim Gordon – Sarah Essen a little bit with Asriel, whom I didn't really mention or talk about. <laughs> There's not much to say with Asriel. Like, in fact, I remember the letters page is saying that like Asriel wasn't going to participate in month two because like his month two story didn't really have anything to do with the earthquake. And I was thinking, well, that didn't stop Robin <laughs> yeah. from you know getting a crossover in month one, but True. it's okay. Yeah, um, the GCPD. This was a good showcase for them, and um, you know, I like Bullock. Um, I question if it's if he should be able to do this, but when he like, you know, rips that thing out of his arm oh and my he gosh. Yeah. the wound and like, <laughs> and I like when he rescues Jim and he says, before we do anything, you need to see your daughter because she's like, I know you. And like, she's going to go crazy until she sees you. Mm-hmm. I, I like Gordon throughout this. And, um, you know, his interaction with Batman and like when he tells Babs, you know, like a bunch of people didn't make it out and she's like stunned. And then Jim says, you know, he immediately knows what to say. He's like a lot more than would have died had it not been for you. Yeah. So yeah, just continuing that great father daughter relationship. Yeah, um, I don't have much to say about the other members of the GCPD. You know, throughout this, but this was during an era where you had characters like you know Mackenzie Bach, Sarah Essen, and like the GCPD had more of like a supporting cast than you know I feel like they do now, mm-hmm. where there was like certain cops and stuff that would get spotlighted. Yeah. And um, that becomes a thing into No Man's Land where, like, some of the cops split up into different different tribes and stuff. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I liked seeing them again. We're not just focusing on the Batman family, but we're focusing on the other citizens of Gotham. So I liked seeing them. I don't think they needed a lot of screen time. I think the amount that they got was sufficient. And, yeah, you know, Jim's, he's uh, not very worried about Sarah Essen, which is interesting. But, well, he does say at one point when they ask, like, you know, um, any word from saying he's like, no, not one word. But, like, he does say in another issue, but I know that she's with, you know, like, yeah. handling this case mm-hmm. over in Asriel, so she's probably all right. And she can, yeah, take her, take care of herself, so, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's I, I I almost wish that we would have gotten that reunion with them during Cataclysm, but I guess that that happens in another book or it happens in Off Panel Land. Oh, I hate that. Uh-huh. We're winding down now on characters, so we've got two left. I'm going to save my girl for the bitter end, but I want to talk about Quake Master. So, two questions involving Quake Master. Number one, the first time you read this, did you foresee it as being operate a, a puppet operated by the ventriloquist? No, I actually thought that it was like someone that could make earthquakes. Yeah, <laughs> did you really? So, oh yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, I, I, I was, I don't know how old I was when this came out. I think I would have been like 13 or something, okay. maybe, you know, maybe turning 14. So I, I, I totally bought into like, yeah, there could be a Batman villain that controls earthquakes. Why not? Uh, so I was surprised, you know, but um, it, it was a good surprise, though, because I like it when the books do something unexpected, mm-hmm. but also familiar, too, because it makes it feel like Batman to you because you have these like familiar faces in unexpected situations. And it was classic ventriloquist where like when the Scarface dummies destroyed he's like help him he needs a doctor like yeah i could hear the guy from the animated series you know of like course, voice yeah. saying that i agree with you i i didn't foresee it coming i was looking at all the clues and robin was noting how the guy couldn't say bees but i was trying to think of like who can't say a bee um and i forgot that they had written him that way because the nasal and yeah just being a ventriloquist you can't necessarily say bee words my other question is do you think he was necessary? Do you think that maybe it was overload having a villain and we could have just had the earthquake been the central focus point? Eh, I think that the villain thing kind of gave it like some suspense for like the end of like these last few issues. And also, you know, it would it would have gotten repetitive if like, you know, they would have stretched out the second month with like more issues of Batman rescuing people from rubble, more issues of like, you know, them doing because we kind of got that, you know, in like the first parts and like, Throughout my recap, there's so many parts where I'm like, this person rescues someone from being buried alive. Like, you know, Batman's rescuing people from being buried. Nightwing's rescuing people from being buried. Tim's rescuing people from being buried in Batman Chronicles. You know, there's and and then like someone's fighting someone and an aftershock makes, you know, the the fight change and someone gets the upper hand. So I, I think that I think that it worked and it also showed, you know, like in a very, you know, Gotham City type way, how somebody will take advantage of a natural disaster like this for their own personal gain. Yeah. Yeah, I just wondered, I don't know. At first I thought, oh no, why is there a villain when all this other stuff is going on? But I guess with the length, with the length of the story, it works. I think if it were shorter, maybe it would have been too crowded. And it was nice to have a little mystery, but there was also other stuff that they were sort of doing and cleaning up the streets and stuff so i'm kind of of two minds it worked out in the end and i liked it but i just wonder what would it have been like without it so but we'll never mm-hmm. know we'll never know so the final our, our, our my girl barbara gordon what are your thoughts on her character in this story and i think you you gave a little bit but if you want to go into more detail yeah no, I, I think i had said before you know and just um i really think that this is um she comes out shining in this, and this is um, one of her strongest 90 stories, I would say, because um, you look at where everyone is during this thing, and she, you know, she's in her wheelchair, and, like, she gets knocked over, you know, and um, first thing she does is get up, and she goes outside to assess the damage, and, like, you see, like, you contrast her with the other people, like, people are falling apart, she sees the cops, she's like, you need to pull yourself together, she's um, very, very admirable in this story, like, if I was you, you know, um, you know, I would be very proud, and I am very proud, to, like, be a Barbara Gordon fan. Like, if someone says, what's so great about Barbara Gordon, you know, 
you would show them this book. Um, she really comes together over a crisis and goes in and takes control of the chaos in the GCBD. I would wonder why she'd be able to do that. Mm. Um, like, because like she's, you know, she is a civilian and even though she's the commissioner's daughter, like, <laughs> you know, cops wouldn't be re- listening to this random person, but you know, I guess when you have that, you know, mom voice yelling at you to get things done, you know, you'll get it done. And it's not like what she's saying is wrong either. You know, she's telling them, um, we need to get ourselves together. And she is concerned about her father, but she's very good at like putting her concern aside to like do stuff done. And even when she sees her dad, she's like, I feel so much better now. And she like does get back to work. And even as she's saving people, she's concerned about the people that she hasn't saved. And, um, even Naomi has to like tell her, let's take a moment to like, just appreciate the fact that we're alive. And, um, and that's one reason why their relationship works too, because while she's busy, you know, trying to do damage control and assess things, he's the one to stop, to stop her and like have her appreciate, you know, like, you know, what's right in front of her so far. And that's one thing that works so well about their relationship. Yeah, they they complement each other really well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think, you know, in the previous storyline, she's only been here, here and there a little bit. It's been hard to sort of talk about her and and her appearances. She's only been really adding technological know-how or contacting people around the world because she is that um, information broker and she's able to do that. But here I think you don't see her as Batgirl, you don't see her as Oracle. You see her as Barbara Gordon, which I think is amazing. You know, she doesn't have a mask on. She's acting as herself. But I think she's using everything that she has learned throughout the years being both Oracle and Barbara Gordon as she does this. And just being a wonderful leader, not being behind the scenes, but being in front of everybody and being a rallying cry and, and optimism and everything. And, yeah, I think it's it's wonderful. It's beautiful. And uh, this is why, yes, this is why I have a podcast dedicated to her because she is such an amazing character. Absolutely. Do you think this story would have worked without her? Could it have happened without her? I think it could have, but I think that we would have lost something yeah. too because one of the things about the story is you could not have done the story in Batman year one. Era that you know, or something, because it wouldn't have been the same. Because this really showcases the Batman family and how each of them come together during a crisis. So, without Oracle in the story, yeah, you know, you still have all these other characters and it still works. But again, there's something missing and something, you know, yeah. a really big linchpin missing. I mean, you know, look at the emotional scenes in Nightwing between them and look at the scenes of her and her dad. Like, you can have this story without all that, it's still a good story, but it's a story that's missing some of the most, you know, heartfelt parts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, I just think she's uh, she's the linchpin for sure. I'm interested to see what a story would look like if, like, it just absolutely could not work without her. Um, maybe it's No Man's Land. She plays a very big role in No yeah. Man's Land. I mean, I think that, you know, you can replace different characters with different people yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. And, like, to, like, make a story work, but it doesn't serve the story. Right, and I right. think that this story serves her and she serves the story it's a very you know good compliment yeah absolutely what did you think overall about the art in this in the in the in the whole work there's some art that i really did not like mm. like the shadow of the bat stuff there's some art that i love like um the you know black eight isle of the men which like you know it, it felt like i was reading a classic you know bronze age oh, or absolutely. 80s batman yeah. story you know with that art um i always loved Staz johnson on uh, robin and as i said before it took me years to appreciate scott mcdaniel but like but you know now that um i'm an adult you know and like the 
some aspects of his art don't bother me or I can really see just how well he is at being a storyteller. Like, you know, all those people, you know, in that like, you know, um, transit vehicle that's like underwater and the way that he draws the light going out, you're able to tell that like the light is dimming out without, you know, it's, it's hard to illustrate the sequence of light changing Mm. in still images. So, you know, he did a good job with that and the drama in everyone's faces and, even, you know, the scene of Dick and Babs together at the office before Robin comes in and the way he does Robin's awkward body language yep. feeling bad that he interrupted, you know, this special moment. So, um, I mean, Scott McDaniel, you know, great. Um, I like the art in Detective Comics. Um, I don't have all the artist names in front of me, but, you know, just what I remember. I didn't care for the art in some of the, like, one-shot stuff, like um, uh, the Arkham Asylum art, you know, like, that was... In fact, like, I really felt like the Arkham Asylum story was filler. And every time I reread this and I get to that, I'm like, eh, I just want to read the Quake Master stuff. I really don't care about this, you know, Jigsaw Man guy. Um, well, it's what happens in Arkham. I actually, I will say I actually liked the art over, well, at the very least, I think you have to be impressed by, I think Dave Taylor was his name, because in all the vignettes, because all of these Arkham Asylum inmates are recalling things, all of the things or their stories or horror stories that they're telling are in, in a completely different style. And I think you really have to give it up to the artist for being able to do that. I, I think with all, I, I guess with the 90s comics that I've encountered so far, there you know, there's good art and there's bad art. I'd say it's pretty consistent. I don't know if there were there was anything like too terribly ugly. But, you know, there are moments that I'm like, ah, eh, you know, I don't like that as much. But overall, it's pretty solid. Yeah. Um, so how would you compare this story, Cataclysm, with the other Batman events that have come this far? It's I'm going mostly from memory because, like, you know, I read I reread Contagion a few years ago and it held up really well. Um, I just reread Nightfall and <laughs> Don and I had a very awkward conversation about it because I said I love Nightfall. But, like, as a crossover, there's parts of it that have not aged very well at all. You know, like in terms of like 90s crossovers where, like. You have different writers writing different, you know, parts of a story. And, like, sometimes it doesn't gel because not everyone's in communication at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it hasn't entirely aged well in terms of, like, some of the continuity bits and, like, behavior of someone from, like, part one to, like, part four. So how, how would you rank or where would you put Cataclysm? How would you say it fares? You know, again, I have to read more of the stuff in the surrounding thing. Like, I, I should reread Legacy and reread some of the stuff that came, like, a little bit afterwards, like Officer Down. But it's not fair for me to rank something that I read more recently with, like, stuff that I have less of a faint memory of to get, like, the full context of it. Okay. I will say that I still think very highly of the Nightfall trilogy. Legacy, I don't think was as worth it especially not you know now dc annoyed me and decided to re solicit the uh the trade but it was not worth the 80 dollars, and i wasn't going to pay 80 dollars. so i think cataclysm is up there i think i like it slightly more than contagion uh though it's pretty close there uh but maybe nightfall is still still up there for me any final thoughts on cataclysm as we 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 leave it I was very glad that when I went back to read this, I still enjoyed it as much as I did back then. In fact, even more so. And um, it's a very important story because this is setting the seeds for, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of stuff that's going to become important down the road. Like we talked about the Stephanie baby, um, the fact that like this is going to be a big story for Huntress. Dick and Babs get together during No Man's Land. That's going to be important. And of course, you know, like uh, we're going to get Cassandra Cain from this, you know, so we're going to be feeling the ramifications of this, you know 
for years to come. In some ways, we still are. I just thought of some irony because Dick and Helena get together in on New Year's, I think, in in No Man's Land. And then there's that Dick and Babs thing that's out of continuity. And it's very similar to the Batgirl issue that we're about to read. Yep. Yep. Well, and then... Uh... You already covered the night the Nightwing Huntress miniseries too that was around this time. I believe I don't so. I think it was right after this. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So yeah, like, well, well, they 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 sleep together in that, and Barbara's not happy. Oh dear. Well, if it's right after this, then I guess maybe I haven't yet. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that sometimes those spreadsheets lie to you about the issues. They really do, actually. Before we take a break, I'm not doing mail uh, this time because I had significant mail and I felt like we were going to jam-pack this episode and so there wasn't, uh, I wanted to give time to it, so not as much space so you can count on that uh, in two episodes, so in the November episode. So before we take a break and, and do our modern tale the new thing here, you know, if you remember a couple years ago, is hashtag Team Shag or hashtag Team Don I, I've transitioned here and it's mainly because of my friend Tom Paneris are you, would you say you're Team Grape? Or Team Raisin, and explain your choice. Um, so, what's team? Which one's Team Grape, and which one's Team Raisin? Mm, that's just the team. The team is: Are you Team Grape or Team Raisin? I can't join a team unless I know what each team stands for. And like, is, do you approve of grapes, or do you like raisins more? I mean, I like I like them both. I mean, in a grape, they, they are a grape is a raisin. I know. You know, they're just different forms of another. It's like. It's like Pokemon, you know, like the grape has evolved into a raisin. So you're not giving me an answer. Well, I, I'm not getting the full context for the question, and your questions are traps anyway, so it's like, it's, you know, it's not a trap. You either are team grape or team raisin. I guess I'll pick grape because if you're going to pick something, you know, fresh or something shriveled up and dry, you know, pick the fresh. Okay. Well, just know that I don't approve of your answer, but <laughs> – I did force you into it. Well, so maybe you should have given me the context then. Well, that, so. <laughs> there's no context, man. There's no context. Okay. Well, when we come back, we're going to review Batgirl and the Birds of Prey number 14 and Batgirl 67, a.k.a. Batgirl 15. But first, Zias's Radio Hour featuring The Gold by Manchester Orchestra. Changed you, you don't have to hold me 
So first up, we are going to tackle "Backroll on the Birds of Prey" number fourteen, and the title for this issue is "Gotham City Limits." Writers Julie Benson and Shauna Benson, artist Marcio Takara, colorist Jordan Boyd, Helena, <laughs> or Ms. Bertinelli, as you may want to call her, takes her class on a field trip and brings Dinah along as a chaperone. Meanwhile, Babs is staying back to take care of business in Gotham City or Burnside. Speaking of Batgirl slash Oracle. Batman calls Bab, saying that he has need of Oracle because his detective comics team is currently drowning in a trap set by Riddler. Oracle does her thing and ends up hacking Batman's phone and freeing them all by using Riddler's vocal commands. Later, Babs gets an alert about a robbery and ends up suiting up. 
elsewhere with Ms. Bertinelli. The class arrives at a Yorktown, Jamestown-esque experience. Uh, they get an ex- orientation, and then the actual Yorktown place asks the chaperones to wear era-appropriate clothing, <laughs> which, even though Donna enjoys uh, dressing up, Helena's not too happy about. The class learns about Shaman Blackfire and Deacon Blackfire, whom later the students connect as being the very same person. Helena then tells the whole story of Blackfire that the historians left out, and Dinah spooks the kids. Apparently, this field trip also involves a campout by some creepy caves, and Dinah and Helena wake up to find the kids gone, and they have actually traveled into the cave. Once they travel in there to find them, we see that Blackfire has resurrected, or he never died, he was just always in there, and he's taking control of the kids. Helena goes into action after ripping her era-appropriate dress and steals his power staff, and then they all run out and Dinah destroys the entrance. Dinah's concerned because the students probably saw Helena go into action, but both of them pretend that it was actually part of the tour, and I guess the kids are dumb enough to believe it. Well, back in Gotham, Batgirl takes out horse mask wearing robbers, which made me laugh because I see those horse. There's a couple kids in school who have those, and so I see them, and so it sort of connected me, connected it to that. Uh, so she takes out these robbers, and she's helping many people on a wonderful little splash page, feeling happy that she can still fight crime on her own. But after coming between two rival street gangs. Batgirl actually calls upon Poison Ivy and Catwoman for help, asking them, of course, to keep to the non-killing rule, which reflects back to Huntress way back in Cataclysm that we talked about. And then after all that's done, uh, they part ways, and Barbara ends up showing up late that night on the field trip, and the three birds catch up on what they did while eating s'mores. Next up, something that sounds super interesting and reminds me of Why the Last Man. It's called Gotham's Manfluenza. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So you've been reading Background the Birds of Prey all along. I feel like I've not really touched base with you, You know, not on this show, but in general. Uh, what are your thoughts overall on this particular series? It's funny because I remember... Um not this San Diego, but the last San Diego, I think we like read the first issue yeah, together yeah. On, on like the tram. And I was like, Oh, Oracle's in continuity mm-hmm. again. Cause we had like a while, like, Oh, Babs was never at Oracle. And I've been hot and cold with like, you know, uh, this series, but, um, i really love what they did at the end of uh, the last arc. The one that, um, the issue that you and Tom covered, um, at the end of, um, the last, uh, the last episode, uh, I love the end of that issue where like, that was one of my favorite comic moments of the year where um, Barbara, she basically like becomes Oracle again. And it says, you know, and she's like leading the team from the Oracle chair. And it says like next issue, mm-hmm. Barbara Gordon is Oracle. And I tweeted the Benson sisters, I think like that panel. And I said, like, thank you so much. I've been like waiting years for this because mm-hmm. um, I kind of like this status quo where Barbara Gordon can be both Oracle and Batgirl. I think that that's, the best of both worlds and that captures the spirit of what rebirth is where you know you can take the best elements of the past moving forward and like still like you know move forward where um i've always argued that like and i i even like during the days of crawl space you know where you and i were you know sparring partners you know i would say just because barbara gets her mobility back doesn't mean that she has to stop being oracle sure. and we and we have here you know like that like she can be both Batgirl mm-hmm. and oracle and I love that. And, um, and and we see that this issue. And uh, it's just, 
I can't explain what it means to me emotionally to be seeing Barbara Gore in this Oracle role again. And um, I like kind of, you know, how this team is settling in. You're asking me, you know, what my thoughts are of the title as a whole. How, like, you know, Helena Bertinelli, like, it's <laughs> her, her whole thing about being, like, this spiral, you know, like, agent. It's like you would almost, like, not know that reading this issue because here she's, she's practically uh, – post-crisis pre-flashpoint you know helena bertinelli she's a teacher Mm -hmm. uh you would not think that these are different characters and i kind of like the relationship between the three women that you know have been building and there's things about this run that i love like there was a issue uh a a few issues ago where they're tending to nightwing and nightwing's acting nervous and then later babs and helena are kind of laughing about it like oh did he think we were gonna fight over him or something you know like uh so i like how they're kind of um not throwing shade at the previous run, but basically showing that like, this isn't, you know, some of the more cliched aspects of past aspect of the birds of prey. So, um, I'm liking a lot of things about this title. There, there's certain things, you know, I'm not liking as much, but, um, it's been, it's been great. And sometimes I'm enjoying it more than Batgirl. Well, yes, I, I can attest to that being true. I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you on, on all those things. I think we're, seeing that three women can be on the same team and and not get into bickering, you know, or into fights. And I I think we had a good level of animosity at the beginning, but that's because there wasn't really trust there. Uh, I feel sometimes like Dinah and Helena bond a little bit more just because they seem to always be on similar missions. Or in this case, you know, they are going on this field trip together. Hopefully I'm not reading too much into that. But even when I see Barbara saying, you know, it's good to see I can still be a hero on my own, I I sort of wonder what that means. And and hopefully she doesn't pull too much away. Because I think being background, being Oracle means two different things. And and I think Oracle... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think Oracle is a great way to always be connected to the team. And uh, she's certainly using a different power set. She's using her intelligence more so and, and connecting to other people. And I think Batgirl, she can kind of be on her own if she wants to be or, or work with others. But we see both of those, which is great because she's Oracle. She's helping Batman out. And then she's uh, Batgirl with, with Poison Ivy and Catwoman, which I in particular liked because I thought that'll be great if we build sort of uh, a cast or a roster and then call them in when need be, because that was very much what the classic birds of prey was. I think, you know, the original was just Dinah and Oracle, but then you started having other people that would come in and out like power girl, even though that fell down. And then you had, you know, Catwoman popped in though. That wasn't a, the best situation. And you had uh, Huntress sometimes or Lois Lane randomly. So that'll be good <laughs> if we can build that roster. And if we need help, Hey, we're going to call and, and bring in Ivy or Catwoman. And it's, and it's not, not an animosity relationship. Like, sure. you know, when um, when Poison Ivy and Catwoman show up, you know, Batgirl's like, oh, I hate you two in the way you do things. Like, they're very friendly. And yeah. it's like, hey, you want to come back and watch, you know, and Netflix with us? And, you know, she's like, no thanks. It's, um, I, I think we need kind of more of that and less of the whole, like, everyone hates each other gritty, gritty thing. Yeah. And um, in regards to what you're saying about Helena and Dinah bonding, I think that that's just one of those team book things where, like, you know, because the Barbara and Dinah relationship is very explored and established, they're trying to establish this other relationship, not at the expense of the other one, but just, you know, in team books, there's different dynamics that you build, you Mm -hmm. know, so they're trying to, you know, strengthen this relationship in addition to the other one. It's like, you know, um, when you and Don go off and do something, and then when you and I, (laughs) does Shag have one of those, like, double names? 
names like he does not no he has a special name but i'm only allowed to call him it write in your best um, nominations for like what Shaq's like you know name should be. <laughs> oh boy oh uh, what do you think i i would like to see more because it seems random that helena all of a sudden is a teacher and i get what you're saying how we're going back to sort of uh, pre-Flashpoint, which yeah. is great, I think. But all of a sudden, I think it was mentioned at the end of the, the Blackbird arc that she she knows of someone, as Hunter's using, she knows of someone who could help. And, of course, the hint was she's a teacher. And here we have this field trip. But do you think we need backstory about how she went into that? I mean, how did she go from matron to all of a sudden a teacher? Do we need that? Is it okay that we just know she's a teacher and we just see little glimpses of that life? Um, I, I don't need... Uh, um, I did not read much of Grayson. I read like some of the first issue and like I peeped through other issues here and there. So I don't know much about this version of Helena and like what her particular. I think it could be fun if they do like a day in the life of like different team members issues like they do sometimes in team books. And maybe they can show then how she became a teacher. But that being said, Mm -hmm. it's. I don't think we need too much as, you know, establishing over it. Maybe like a throwaway line about how like she had a teaching degree or like because of her time in spiral, like she had like, you know, training to be a teacher or something. I think I, I think I would like to know why she picked that, because, you know, it takes a certain type of person to be a teacher, as you would know, you know, like <laughs> just yeah. the schedule and like the pay and something, especially going from what her previous job is. So, um, yeah, it would be interesting to follow up on. Um question for you um Mm -hmm. so like if you're on a field trip with some students if dawn and i just like showed up in the middle of the night while you were camping and like said hey we decided to come after all like i I feel like that would not be allowed Mm, uh, no it'd probably be weird because why is your friend coming over you're that's a different situation because you're a different gender um so i think it's a little bit easier since barbara is you know, the same gender as Dinah and Helena. But yeah, because you haven't really cleared it with the, um, with the, you know, with the parents that this is another chaperone that we're going to have. Yeah. But then also, if you look around that campfire, it doesn't seem like those kids are there anymore for whatever reason, even though they should be. But but I, I guess, but like, even if the kids aren't there, presumably like, she's still like on duty doing the field trip and stuff. And yeah. You know, and in the morning, I, I don't know. It's a, j- yeah. just a question I had. And another thing that I'm not sure about is um, I don't know, like, in terms of New 52 and and post-Rebirth and Flashpoint, like, what people know about Dinah. Like, if they know that, like, she was, like, in the Justice League and stuff like that. Because oh. when the kids are like, oh, you're Black Canary the Rockstar, I'm, like, thinking, should, shouldn't they also be, like, you know Superman and you fought, you know, Darkseid? I don't know that that's part of her backstory. Neither, Honestly, neither do I. Like, I'm not sure with the whole... I know Rebirth is bringing a lot of stuff back in the continuity. Yeah. Um, and I did, I, I did think that was a fun reference because, yeah, she, you know, was famous for doing the whole... Um, I read the first few issues of that Black Canary series where, like, she was basically famous because at her concerts there would always be these fights that would break out. And people yeah. would, like, go to the concerts to, like, watch the fights. And she was kind of famous for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think about Deacon Blackfire as the villain? I think the last time we've seen him was Batman and Robin Eternal, I think he popped up, or it was a Batman storyline. I think it was Eternal. Uh, yeah, do, do you think that he was too big to just be put in and taken out so easily as a one-shot? That was my least 
Yeah. Well, because literally we went to dinner at like midnight one night and everyone was on a device but me. So I'm like, what? what is this? Like human relationships? We don't have any. So on Sunday, I forced them to, to give it up. Final question, uh, unless you have other things to, to bring up, is about the art. Uh, what did you think about the art? I liked some of it. I disliked other parts of it. Like the yeah. scene where Oracle like turns in the back row and she has the slippers. Just Her body is proportioned like really oddly in that like it's uh wasn't mm-hmm. digging that picture yeah it's i don't hate it but it's just things that felt off yeah. to question uh you know if if uh if we're done discussing the artist can you think of any other superhero aside from who has like two dual identities at once and i'm sure that there's mm. many examples and i just can't think of them but like someone who's two different identities you know like she's bought she's batgirl and oracle and i can't think of anyone else off the top of my head. I would only say Moon Knight, but that's because he's multiple identities. Peter Parker for like a month in the yeah. 90s. Yeah. I I can't think of anything. Someone that would go out. No. I'm not sure. Um, unless they're like double agents or something, or triple agents. I do wonder why Barbara was wearing that really weird hoodie. The hoodie and the slippers. It, even though she's been... Re- renewed, I guess, as a character in this particular era, it just it didn't like feel like something that she would wear. I thought that was a little strange. Um, so some of the art uh, I liked, just like you, I think I liked, and some I didn't. I think mostly I didn't like how Barbara was drawn, but I really liked how how that splash page. Well, I guess it's not really a splash page, but it is a full page of working and out. And I liked how Helena was drawn particular. Um, and I think there's a great pages and panel with the Birds Bay with Ivy and Catwoman fighting and everything. So those would be uh, some of the, the positives, certainly. Uh, so out of 10 birds, what would you give this issue? Eight. I think that, I think that the strong stuff was so strong that, yeah. like, it drowned out uh, the weak stuff. And in terms of Barbara's, um, you know, hoodie and everything and slippers, that's just me. I think that's just, like, kind of like a 2017 culture type thing where, you know, she's lounging. You know? so she's, like, she's wearing her comfort clothes. You know, she's not, like, going out. Yeah. She's not wearing her going out clothes. You know how, that. like... We have clothes that we wear around the house, and I think that that's what that was supposed to be, you know, as opposed to, like, the 90s where, like, in those old Birds of Prey stuff, whenever, like, it would cut back to her, she was always, like, swimming or working out or, yeah. like, you know, or, like, you know, painting the Sistine Chapel or something, like, to that. show, like, uh, yeah, no, no, and, and Birds of Prey, I, I know, I know, <laughs> I know. Uh, I'm going to give it an 8.5. I think it was about um, the same as uh, the previous issues. Uh, there are some things I really like, some things that didn't necessarily – I didn't necessarily agree with. But I think we're entering this new era and this new potential status quo, so I'm excited to see where we go from here with um, how – Back, how Barbara balances Batgirl and Oracle. So that'll be interesting. And I'm wondering what manfluenza means. So, We're now into Batgirl number 15, a.k.a. Batgirl 67. And this is Summer of Lies Part 2. And if you recall, I really didn't like, and my co-host Tom also did not like, the previous one. And so I was trying to keep an open mind with this one and hoping it got better, hoping some of the things that I had problems with uh, went away or answers were made. So let's see what happens here. Writer Hope Larson pencils Chris Wildgoose, inks Jose Marzan Jr., and colors Matt Lopez. Back then... Batgirl and Robin crash a Gotham County High party looking for psychedelic drugs and the person that is pushing those drugs. 
In a very intimate moment, Babs and Dick change out of their costumes and raid the closet of the homeowners, revealing their secret identities to each other. And this is bigger on the part of Dick uh, because he already knows who Barbara Gordon is, but she did not know who he was. Dick notices at the party that there isn't alcohol while Babs is too naive to notice. And this is actually a detail here because the party goers start to get high off some substance and one of them ends up freaking out and running outside and then back around Robin, I guess, to a quick costume change and run after him. Outside the hospital where this party goer is, Robin and Backroll discuss the case and Backroll asks Robin to call her when he gets the results from a cup he took. I guess I missed the part where they traded numbers. Later, Babs is outside Ainsley's apartment to start her internship and Ainsley introduces her to her computer setup and nanorobotics, saying that her client wants to use the tech to produce chromathesia, the ability to see sounds as colors. Hallucinations, however, are a problem in all the subjects that have been, I guess, induced with these nanorobotics. Ainsley gets a call from her doctor and asks Babs to cover her shift at the Chive Garden. Which is funny, I had a dinner at the Olive Garden with my mother after seeing it. But anyways, Ainsley comes in later and freaks out because of some customers dining in her section. She runs off, and Babs calls Dick to help her investigate who these men are and what Ainsley has gotten herself into. So then we have the present time stuff. Background Nightwing, if you recall. <laughs> this is just like it, I the back know. and forth. Well, yeah, it was back and forth, and I, I could have done... All of that in my recap, I decided to, like, consolidate it. So if you recall, Batgirl and Nightwing have been at or were at Gotham General Hospital, and they were talking to Mad Hatter when he, uh, about the Red Queen when he begins to have a seizure. Nightwing stays with Hatter as Batgirl goes to see what sort of commotion is going on in the hallway. And a nurse who's calling herself the Red Knight is going crazy, and she speaks of the Red Queen. And despite pain and injury, the nurse, or Red Knight, continues until they subdue her with a straitjacket and both Nightwing and Batgirl put her in an MRI machine. The thought is that they know that there are nanorobotics or robots in her, and so they're thinking that the MRI machine will fry them. Another nurse helps them out and turns on the MRI machine, but the nanotech that is inside the bad nurse goes haywire and ends up frying her, and all you see are her ashes. Nightwing mourns what happened, and Batgirl tries to comfort him, which then turns into a kiss or two. Nightwing is the one who pulls back, I would say, and says he can't do whatever this is. And after an awkward moment, they continue their investigation, and they learn more about Red Knight, who happens to be a psychiatrist named Dr. Filbert. This is the same doctor who called Ainsley in the past, and and Barbara is able to recall this. Next up, the Red Queen Revealed. Before we start talking about this, I want to ask you about the previous issue. Do you agree with my assessment that there's some continuity issues? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm so glad. Even let's say, even if we ignored like everything that happened before 2011, and we're just going from the new 52 continuity, <laughs> like I read that zero issue again, oh, like because yeah. I decided to go back and reread the Gail Simone run beginning to end, you know, just wow. just for kind for of historical things. purposes. Sure. And uh, I don't know about fun, but (laughs) Barbara's like, I don't have the zero issue in front of me, but she was like already done with high school and like in college Mm. when she became Batgirl that first time it was saying. So like, why is she in high school being Batgirl? Mm. So like, that's, that's a continuity issue there in and there of itself. Mm -hmm. 
What did you think of, because I was very much against it, I'm going to revisit it again as I read uh, Donovan's letters in the next episode, but what did you think of the relationship between Robin and Batgirl in the past, in the previous issue? It's hard for me to look at that objectively, I'm going to be honest with you, because anytime there's like a story that like Trump's previous continuity, like for the purpose of its own thing, that always immediately gives me a bias against it. I do think it's weird that like when they're the same age, because like the the age gap between them has been closing ever since like 1967 to a point where now, like it looks like they're the same age or like he's, he could even be older than her. It's, it's weird. But like, so that kind of bothers me in and of itself. But, um, I mean, and Dustin's having me do, um, you know, a Batgirl and Robin, a, a Dick Grayson, and Barbara Gordon retrospective for the website. Right. And like part one is up as we speak right now. Uh, and it's just weird because like none of that stuff that's in part one is even like, you know, relevant to like this, like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> to, to, to this thing. Like it's a completely different. So it, it just automatically bothers me, especially because like, you know, we have Rebirth bringing all this stuff back into continuity. Like we we, we just had, you know, Lonely Place of Dying's back in continuity. Yep. Uh, most of post-crisis Superman's intact. But then we have, like, you know, this, where, like, Batgirl in the past, like, wore this costume that she never wore, and Dick Grayson, you know, like, isn't wearing the pixie boots. Like, that's a very... This is going to be one of the most fanboy things that I've ever said, but, like, you know, (laughs) I'm mad that Dick Grayson's not wearing the pixie boots in the flashback. Like, just because it's, like... While they're, like, doing this thing where they're saying, hey, look, you know, past continuity is, like, canon... Then on the other hand, we have this, where, like, it's a completely new history of Batgirl and Robin, and one that I feel is an inferior history, and that automatically gives me a prejudice against the story. Mm -hmm. So then, going from that, what did you think about their portrayal in this particular show? I I like some of the friendliness between them, because usually, like, they're very, like, there's kind of an antagonistic thing, you know, in some of the older stories where, like, Barbara's, like, very intolerant of what Dick's doing. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, I kind of like that it was, you know, more friendly. And I, I even kind of enjoyed that uh, they just readily gave out their secret identities. Because while that does feel weird, it's also a welcome change from, like, just a lot of the Bat Family stuff that we have. Which, in fact, uh, when we covered Cataclysm earlier today, and we talked about how, like, Barbara couldn't Tim's name, you know. Yeah. And now we have this story where, like, Dick, Dick just gives her his name without a second thought. He's not like, oh, no, you know, what What will Batman think? Or what if she figures out that Bruce Wayne's Batman? Mm-hmm. They're working together. They're on a case, and they trust each other. So, um, you know, they reveal their names to each other, mm-hmm. and it's not treated as an ultra big deal. And I, I kind of like that, you know. Yeah. And it was also kind of casual in Batman Family Number 2 when they, like, revealed each other's identities to each other, too. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I actually. It goes along with that. Yeah, I thought that I, I liked this much better than issue fourteen. I thought in the past that it seemed like they were on better footing. The relationship was more well rounded, and I thought that maybe there was more of an equality, or, or on you know on the same level. We didn't really have Robin acting superior to Batgirl that I felt like we had in the previous one. But they were actually sharing a case and working together. He was going to share details. Later on, she calls for his help to do another investigation. So it really seems like they're becoming partners and they're sharing that trust. And I called it an intimate scene, and and I I thoroughly believe so because, you know, revealing 
a secret identity is a very intimate thing and more so on his part because he had invaded her privacy and already knew who she was but then he lets that down and and I think opens his arms or you know gives his hand and trust so I thought it was a very beautiful moment there so I, I was pretty I was pretty excited about that yeah, so then we get to the shipper moments in the... And I will say there were some cute shipper moments in the past, especially when she says, call me, and um, it's sort of... you could He's see, holding like, my hand! Oh, yeah, you got that as well. as Yeah, he blushed a little bit as well, so you kind of... That, that was nice. And then we get to the, the, the future, I guess, the present tense shipper moments. And uh, again, I think they were dealt with better than in the previous issue, but I'm a little concerned because, and I hate to be that person, but it's pretty blatant. You're not reading Nightwing, but in the previous issue, Dick just slept oh, with... Oh, I'm he- reading Nightwing. Oh, okay. <laughs> Dick just slept with Helena. Yeah, and he also, you know, was um, living with... Uh, Sean. Oh, I, I forgot. Uh, Sean, yeah. Uh, Sean, right? Yeah, yeah. and and, Jim, and we she, we thought she was yep. pregnant for like yep. you know about five minutes. Yep. So yeah, this is two thousand and six, like two thousand and seven, all over again. Where like in the span of a few months, Dick was like you know sleeping with like you know Starfire and like being engaged to Barbara mm-hmm. and like because yeah. each, each of the writers didn't know what the other one was doing, sure. and then they did one year later, and he was with this like redhead named uh, I, Cheyenne, I think her name was. It was. It, yeah, it's that bothers me, and maybe that's why Dick's saying I can't do this. Yeah. I was, I'm actually really disappointed in him for sleeping with Helena because yeah. um, I am a Dick and Bab shipper, but I'm also enjoying the Dick and Sean relationship. Yeah. So you know, I'm kind of sad that like yeah. that's being crumbled because uh, I thought that that was a very different kind of superhero relationship. Now Donovan brought up to me, um, and I don't know if this is in his letters or not, but that um. He thinks, and uh, I haven't come up with an example to prove I'm wrong yet, but he thinks that this is the first Dick and Babs kiss since Nightwing Annual 2. Hmm. Nothing else is really coming to mind. Yeah, because they had like an almost date, remember, um, in Nightwing – but he was late to her. He was late, and he had those like um, those little nesting dolls he was going to get her from Russia. Um, but he ended up skipping yeah. the date. So yeah, nothing's happened. They've gotten close to getting back together, but it hasn't happened. Even in that uh, wedding issue, the Alicia wedding uh, to Joe, I don't yeah. think there there wasn't anything. She's, there she's with she was Luke with Fox Luke. in yeah. that issue. So uh, I could say that he's probably and right. And she was with Ricky when they talked about moving to Chicago together. Yeah. And that and that annual. I don't think that they kissed in that annual. So, uh, so it, it, at least there's that. I mean, it's taken them uh, ten years to kiss again. Sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe. So, hope. Hopefully, it doesn't. Hopefully, we'll see another kiss before 2027. Yeah, but I hope it's in. I hope they're both in the right frame of mind because I think she's in a different place than he's in, given the fact that they that was a heavy relationship that he was in with Sean, with Sean, and you know, almost being a father. I think is also a big thing and so he's clearly not in the right place i feel like it was slightly inappropriate given the the case and the circumstances but i do see that you know she was comforting him and and sometimes one thing leads to another well i'm I'm wondering if there's a piece of the puzzle that we don't know because they say they're trying to get us to remember what happened back then so like maybe this has to do with memories of the case and maybe i'm reading too much into the art but there was like this weird like pink border of like smoke around them when they kissed so like I'm wondering if, I don't know, like maybe I'm looking for things that aren't there, but like 
maybe they're being manipulated or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like, who, who knows? But, I mean, Deacon Babs can kiss, and there doesn't have to be reason for it there that they're yeah. Deacon Babs. Um, I did not read all of Grayson, as I said before. So, like, did Dick and Helen sleep together in that title at all? No. No. P had a relationship with another agent, but there was, like, heavy heavy flirting, and, and you thought it was going to go somewhere, but never Okay, did. so that... Well, that's kind of disappointing. I mean, not that like, but it, it changed. Yeah. It just changed the context of him like sleeping with her, you know, in there because it's not like they're exes who like you know yeah. kind of fell back in the bed together. It's it's uh, yep. That's unfortunate, and this isn't a Nightwing podcast, so like I you know I don't want to examine that too much. You but can't uh, talk about and because of this whole rebirth <laughs> yeah. thing of like we don't know what's in continuity or out of continuity, like them kissing here, like I don't know what kind of context to give it. Where like you know, are we supposed to? take for granted that like okay were they engaged after infinite crisis you know for five minutes did they wind up dating you know when she was oracle or like is this their first actual kiss like and and to be honest i I would rather have it be ambiguous than for them to say some things are in continuity and some things are out because this way you can pretend that it's all canon which i like to pretend that it's all canon i like to pretend that the dick and babs that are kissing here like you know that they they dated during Officer Down and No Man's Land, and uh, and he did ask her to marry him, and she wore that ne- that wedding ring around her wedding ring, engagement ring around her neck. I don't want them to come mm-hmm. out and say that that didn't happen, because then you know it's harder to pretend that it did. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did think that this issue was getting closer. Uh, I felt like we're getting more pieces of the puzzle. One of the things I had in the previous issue is just like there's all these different things thrown at us, but none of them seem to connect. Overall, just this issue seemed better organized. I feel like there's a connection between the drugs and Ainsley's research, that the drugs are nano uh, robots and it's it's fueling Ainsley's research, but she's answering to someone who's higher up. Uh, but I do wonder what is the purpose of uh, chromathesia? What do you think the purpose would be in seeing sounds as colors? Do you have any thoughts on this? No, <laughs> no, I'm just kind of a long okay. ride. <laughs> I just wondered. Yeah, I actually wonder if this is even a um, real thing. Let me Google it. Oh, there was a character really on quickly. Heroes who had that um, power. Uh, it was like a season four character. She oh, she, she played the cello. <laughs> Sound to color thin thinesthesia is a type of thinesthesia in which, her, yeah, sounds automatically and involuntary invoke an experience of color. I don't know. Well, I'm seeing an image here. I mean, it looks beautiful. It's certainly something you could put on a light show with, but it probably messes with your brain, which is why people are having hallucinations. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, what? I guess would your unless you have any final thoughts. Not especially. What would be your what grade on six this? out of ten uh, bats? Wow, six out of ten is rather um, low. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. I just wonder because overall, I, 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 I mean, besides like DC's the Dickens, so nice it's to us, but <laughs> no, it just sounded like um, you liked it a little bit. Well, earlier, right? I, I I I try not to dwell too much on the negative when I give a grade, but ultimately, like you know. I have a lot of prejudice coming into this, and the prejudice does affect my grade. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie about that. <laughs> okay. I, I'm i going to give it an 8 out of 10. So I thought it was way better than the previous issue. Like I said, I think it was uh, better organized. The relationship, I think, was written better. Uh, I think there's still some things we need to sort out. Uh, I'm still I'm concerned. However much I enjoy seeing shipper moments between Dick and Babs, I'm always really nervous about it and sort of the intent behind it and where it's going to go from here because I feel like 
I'm, I'm always being set up for some sort of devastation, and I just don't want that to always be the case. Um, so, ugh, I, could these people ever be together? I don't know. But, yeah, 8 out of 10, so, so much better than the other one. And I'm going to sort of rethink everything because, you know, Don has this email that he has sent to me, and I'm going to save that for the next episode. But he sort of calls me out on why I didn't like it. So I need to, like, rethink that previous issue. But still, when I think about it, I don't like it as much. Okay, well, uh, now over to Chris for his Batman 66 review. Thanks, Stella. And as always, thanks for not (laughs) fast-forwarding. Thanks, Chris, a.k.a. Josh. We're the same person. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's all uh, th- that'd be scary. That'd be scary. Um, he, I see. I trust him more than I trust you. Ah, uh, that's like finding a full-size Snickers bar at the bottom of your Halloween bag when you thought all your candy was gone. And I don't mean the fun-size Snickers. Am I right? You know what I'm talking about. Speaking of candy bars, do they still make Mounds or Almond Joy? My dad loved Mounds and Almond Joy, but I didn't care for them. But I digress. Thank you very much, Stella. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome to something new, the Batman Adventures Review segment. Thank you very much for downloading, and as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. My name is Chris, and I'm very glad to be with you. So, while it was a fun ride while it lasted with the Batman 66 title, which had a decent run and various team-ups miniseries, and since the Batman vs. Two-Face DVD with Adam West and William Shatner hasn't been released yet at the time of this recording... I was in a quandary as to what to cover in my segment this month and going forward. Stella still graciously allowed me to have some time on her show, so in the months leading up to this and no new Batman 66 material in sight forthcoming, I thought, what could I review? I thought reviewing the Nightwing title would be a logical choice, as I do ship the Babs and Dick relationship, and Dick is currently appearing in the Batgirl title. I think I will get to that at some point, which would complement the material Stella is covering. However, right now I'm also working in a local play. Free moments are a bit of premium for me, and I would need more time to do Nightwing justice. At the same time, I wanted to look at something that I didn't think anyone had previously covered on a podcast, at least that I'm aware of. So for the moment, I'll look at the Batgirl appearances in the 90s comic book title, The Batman Adventures, a comic book based on Batman the Animated Series. And for an added bonus, in keeping with the Halloween spooky theme, I'll review a classic Batman horror story later on in my segment. I wanted to contribute something with respect to Batgirl and with respect to Stella, who might visit this material at some point, but I thought I'd offer my own take in the interim. First up, Batman Adventures number 12, Batgirl's first appearance in this title and continuity. Batman Adventures number 12 was cover dated September 1993 and had a cover price of $1.25. Our story is entitled Batgirl Day One and was written by Kelly Puckett. Mike Parabic was the penciler. He also provided the cover artwork, which has Batgirl and not Batman on the title, and depicts Batgirl in the foreground, flanked by Harley Quinn on the left pointing a gun at her and Poison Ivy on the right pointing a wrist crossbow at her. And this is against a deep purple background. Rich Burchett did the inks and Rick Taylor was the colorist. The opening splash page is the only part where we see Batman in this entire issue. It shows Batman apparently at the face of Mount Rushmore pursuing a bearded mountaineer as a part of the Rock Ridge heist. This account is being told to us by Commissioner Gordon as the scene shifts to his home and we see he's answering his daughter Barbara who wonder if Batman is in Gotham City and 
just what would it be like to be Batman? We should note Barbara evidently just got out of the shower as she's wearing a robe and a towel on her head. The commissioner asks if she's going to wear that to the party that she's going to, and this is her friend Sandy's party, and she tells him no, that this is just a costume party. Gordon also tells Barbara about the enormous risks and danger Batman takes every night, and one mistake or one lucky shot, and Batman's life is over. He tells her to have fun at the party as he departs, and Barbara then opens a box revealing her costume. A Batgirl costume. The scene shifts outside the Molten Towers, the site of the costume party, where we see Poison Ivy looking at a picture of Barbara's friend Sandy while talking to Harley Quinn and learning that Sandy is to be their kidnap victim for a million-dollar ransom as their father heads a corporation that has destroyed forests. Making her way to the party, Barbara, now dressed as Batgirl, looks for Sandy. She goes through a door and is met by a burly security guard who tells her to go back to the party. As she starts to go, the guard turns and he tries to get others to leave the area, who turn out to be Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy, who already have Sandy tied up and gagged. Harley takes out the guard with a Louisville Slugger baseball bat, and upon seeing Barbara dressed like Batman, she starts to go after her. She swings and misses, and while Barbara tries to grab her bat, their heads connect, and Harley Quinn falls to the floor stunned. Ivy tries to shoot Batgirl with her wrist crossbow, but acting quickly, Barbara grabs a plant and throws it over Ivy's head. As Ivy tries to retrieve it, Barbara makes her get away with Sandy as she unties and ungags her. When Sandy asks her who her rescuer is, Barbara replies that she's Batgirl and that Batman couldn't make it. Sandy tells her that Batgirl was amazing as she manages to beat up Harley Quinn and Ivy. The smiles are short-lived, though, as they are soon met at gunpoint by Harley. Suddenly, a guard knocks out Harley from behind with a blow to the back of the head with a blackjack, or a sap, if you will. Batgirl is momentarily relieved, but behind her back, Sandy is seized by another guard, and Batgirl herself is subjected to a vicious blow to the back of her head, knocking her unconscious. When she revives, she finds herself, along with Sandy, Harley, and Ivy, each separately bound to tables and looking up at the Catwoman, with five of her henchmen dressed like security guards working on breaching the ceiling to get to the floor above them, so that Catwoman can access the sewer diamond that's on display there. Once the guards break through the ceiling, Catwoman goes up, easily steals the diamond, and blows the woman a kiss as she departs with the guards. Batgirl convinces Ivy to shoot one of her darts at Batgirl's ropes, and she gets herself loose. Using the dart, Batgirl throws it through the hole through the roof, striking the diamond glass case, causing the alarm to sound. Catwoman sends the guards downstairs by elevator, and like sheep, they go and do that and get captured. Catwoman then makes her way to the roof with the diamond, but Batgirl is already there and quickly snatches the diamond away from her. Batgirl threatens to throw it over the ledge of the building, and with sirens approaching, Catwoman is forced to escape. Commissioner Gordon arrives, and Barbara, now in her civilian clothes, rushes to her father, as she tells her dad that she is all right and she wasn't near the action. When Gordon asks Barbara where her costume is, Barbara tells him that she threw it away as it didn't fit her, and in the foreground we see a janitor pushing a cart with a discarded costume inside. The End while this isn't the last appearance of Batgirl in this title, and she is the main character in this story, this issue's main significance is for having the distinction of being the first chronological appearance of Harley Quinn in a comic book. According to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, this issue was released on August 3, 1993. 
Joker's Favor, the first episode of Batman the Animated Series that Harley Quinn appeared in, aired about 11 months earlier, on September 11th, 1992. I bring this up not just for historical context, but because, though, I think there had to be some character references to the Harley Quinn character prior to when this issue was colored, this is interesting because Harley Quinn's domino mask is colored red in this story and not black. I'm trying to remember when I first saw the character Harley Quinn. Now, it may have been in a drawing in a magazine just prior to when the show debuted, or it might have even been on a gum card from a set of Batman and Robin activity cards that came out just before the show did, if memory serves me right. I could be wrong, but I think maybe that's how it went down. Now, on a side note, I remember about 10 or 15 years ago, I stumbled on a website where someone stated that the first comic book appearance of Harley Quinn was Batman... Harley Quinn, which introduced the character to regular Batman comic book continuity. I contacted the fellow and we had an exchange, and I politely stated that the first chronological appearance of Harley Quinn was Batman Adventures number 12, and usually down the line, the first chronological appearance may be the first actual appearance, and then this tends to have a higher value in the back issue market. He disagreed and stated that Batman Harley Quinn would go down with a higher collectible price in the back issue market. Further, stating that he was something of a Batman expert, which took me aback as I didn't know whether that the title was self-proclaimed or if it was bestowed upon him by some accredited Batman Institute of Higher Learning. All this, despite our age differences, I was older, and who read Batman longer? Me. We went back and forth with each of us sticking to our guns, but we did agree that time would tell as to which book would eventually have the higher value. As of this recording, prices for Batman Adventures number 12 in fine condition will set you back for around $300. A fine copy of Batman Harley Quinn goes for 225 on mycomicshop.com. Okay, I apologize, listeners, I digress. I know when fans get together, occasionally you run into someone with differing opinions about something really trivial, and that's one of my stories. Perhaps you have one of your own, and if you're inclined, I'd be curious to hear about it. Okay, speaking of stories, let's get into this one. Okay, Batgirl didn't take on Killer Moth in her first adventure here, and I don't recall Killer Moth on Batman the Animated Series, but she did take on Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy and Catwoman, which is not a bad way to break in. Like Detective Comics 359, Batgirl's first chronological appearances, uh, circumstances of the costume were intended to be just that, a costume to wear on a lark for fun. Batgirl appears agile here, but we don't see what, if any, training she's had, physically or mentally, by that of any detective studies. Uh, minor comment, I was a little taken aback by the use of the blackjack or sap in this story. Something not as common in comics nowadays as perhaps they once were. I first saw them used when I read comics in the 70s as a kid that reprinted stories from the 1940s. It seemed that every gangster carried one in his pocket in old Batman stories, or any superhero story from that era for that matter. It seemed that the usage depicted here was mildly brutal and violent in this story, but certainly effective. I'm not sure what other knockout contrivance would have come off any better. I did like that Gordon initially tells Barbara that the stakes of being Batman are very high. Batman suggests himself to danger each time he goes out. We do see that Barbara helps her friend due to circumstances, and yes, some of this scenario is a bit contrived. But I do really like the story. 
there's just something about how earnest and confident and self-assured Barbara comes across here. She mentioned that Gordon personally guaranteed the safety of the diamond. That resonated with me. Parabek's art really shines here with fantastic facial expressions, and the character representations are really evocative of the animated series. I should note that Parabek is very sorely missed. He passed away only at age 30 back in 1996. There were some other minor details. It appears that some of the costume partygoers looked like characters from the Love and Rocket series by the Hernandez brothers. Now, I couldn't find out if this was any story behind that or if it was just a nice nod to them. Both Commissioner Gordon and Harley Quinn mistakenly call Sandy Cindy for some reason. And as we know, this will not be the last appearance of Batgirl in this title. In my opinion, this is a classic story with all the characters and great voice. Yes, this title was kid-friendly. But how could you not go wrong with all the characters that appear here? I love it. I'm giving Batman Adventures number 12 10 out of 10 bats. If you would like to read the story, I do believe it's on Comixology. And it was first reprinted in Batman the Collected Adventures volume number 2. It was a trade paperback. And most recently, last year, it was also reprinted in the very affordable Harley Quinn, Harley's Greatest Hits trade paperback. Now for an added Halloween bonus. Let me tell you a tale. A bleak hillside in central Mexico. A pair of open graves. And the shadow of dread mark the beginning of an excursion into the eerie, the terrifying, the deadly. Stand still and hear the wind howling like souls in torment. See the rise of the ashen moon. Breathe deeply and sniff the scent of death as you prepare to learn the secret of the waiting graves. Bruce Wayne, along with every socialite in the Western Hemisphere, finds himself as a guest of Dolores and Juan Muerto. As a hot air balloon race commences, one of the competitors, Pedro Valdez, finds his balloon being torn by falcons. A hundred feet off the ground and falling out of the basket, the Batman leaps off of a cliff and knocks Valdez off course, where he hits rotter and not rocks. Before Valdez can thank him, the Batman mysteriously vanishes. Bruce Wayne then greets his hosts, and while they appear to be the same age, they talk to Bruce as if he was significantly younger. When the unshaken Valdez appears, he is shot at by snipers. Again, the Batman goes into action and finds the sniper's nest. He beats the snipers savagely, but one of the snipers uses a high-pitched whistle, and the Batman is suddenly surrounded by wolves who thirst his blood. Batman leaps over the edge and hangs on a bat line until the attackers leave. Meanwhile, Valdez is led to his monastery by his hosts. As they enter, Juan shows Valdez a patch of Sybil flowers, which, according to legend, confer immortality, but at the cost of insanity. Valdez reveals himself to be a government agent, which the Mertos had suspected was on their trail. Valdez attempts to place the couple under arrest, but Juan then waves a torch in front of his eyes, and Dolores delivers a well-placed blow to Valdez's neck, rendering him unconscious. After they do a short gloat, Batman arrives. 
Dolores tells her husband that Batman thinks he can capture them, but he's quite mistaken. Instead of retreating, the couple beckon him to enter further. Batman senses a trap, but sees nothing that they can use against him. Suddenly, a cloying, sweet scent fills Batman's nostrils and sets his brain afire. The flowers cause intense hallucinations, and Juan uses the opportunity to deliver a blow to knock the Batman out. The couple bind the men and send the sharp Talon Falcons to shred them. Uncertain if he is hallucinating, Batman fights off the ravenous beasts and manages somehow to get free. Batman's head clears, and he realizes that these blooms, if circulated, would cause the world to have an epidemic of madness. Using a torch, Batman sets the Sybil Flower Patch on fire. As they burn, the Muertos run, and suddenly begin to age rapidly and rapidly. Their skin withers and cracks, and as they reach two empty waiting graves, they each fall inside to their end. There lies their tombstones, which read, One Muerto, born 1840, and Batman Scrawling, 1969, Dolores Muerto, born 1843, and Batman Scrawling, 1969. This story originally appeared in Detective Comics number 395. It was written by Denny O'Neill and penciled by Neil Adams and inked by Dick Giordano. I first read this story in the book Batman from the 30s to the 70s, and while Batman would have some encounters with the supernatural in his career, this would be my first encounter with such a story. The story would again be later reprinted in a 1978 comic book entitled Dynamic Classics, which only lasted one issue, maybe a result of the DC implosion around this time. I'm not sure. I would be later fortunate enough to find an original copy in the uh, 1980s, and I added it to my collection. This story again would be reprinted in the year 2000 as the result of a fan vote to be included in the Millennium Edition reprints. This was significant because this was the first collaboration between Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, one of the legendary creative teams on the character that would produce some great Batman material and stories. Okay, this is not a bad spooky, and I was torn between choosing this and the Demon of Gotho's Mansion story. Maybe I'll save that one for next year. This is a story you just kind of go with. We're immediately immersed in the setting, and things are explained as it goes along. The Neil Adams art is outstanding. It's a fast read, and I think this is being the first collaboration of O'Neill and Adams makes it significant, almost more so than the story itself. I read this at an early age, and even at my present age, I think it's just a very good story with great art, but just not quite outstanding. Maybe it's just too fast of a read. I would not say this story is overrated, but it just doesn't grab me as some of the later teams work. I'm torn between giving this a 7 and an 8, so I'll give this story 7.5 out of 10 bats. Listener, that wraps it up for me. Be sure to check out Stella's Required Reading Podcast. Shout out to the Sutherlands. Be sure to check out Warlord Worlds, Trigger Talk, and Xenozoic Xenophiles Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at BTO and Bat Books. I'll tweet about my weekend nightstand reads, some old Batman comic books, and I put out a Saturday morning salute where I tweet a pic of an old TV listing from Saturday mornings of yore, among other things. Give it a try. I hope you like it. 
If you're not already following, I hope you check it out. More so, give me a follow. Now again, that's spelled B-T-O-A-N-D-B-A-T-B-O-O-K-S. B-T-O as in Batgirl Oracle. And Bat Books as in Bat Books for Beginners, the other podcast I can be found on. I co-host it with Jerry Green, where we examine and review trade paperbacks of collected material of Batman or related characters. Listeners, please feel to leave any comments for myself on this segment or for the podcast on the TBU website. Please consider us giving us a good review over on iTunes. If you'd like to lend your support to the Batman universe, it's a website that has news, articles, editorials, and a fine family of podcasts. You can make a donation on Patreon or a one-time donation by PayPal by following the links on the Batman universe website homepage. Thank you very much for your support. If any of you would like to contact me directly, I'd appreciate it. It's fine. I can be reached by email at bruce.wayne at gothamcity.us. And again, thanks for your support. What character will Batgirl team up with in her next appearance? What femme fatale will Batgirl square up with in a future issue? What searing surprises will Stella have in her next episode? Don't fail to listen to the next episode where the answer is to these jaunting, jovial, jeering, joking jests not to be gerrymandered next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Do you have any any uh, literature recommendations you'd like to drop? Yes. Um, I, I read a great book um, about a month or two ago, and um, it's about a man who he's kind of like an outcast from society, and um, he loses his job, and, you know, uh, he's in a really reflective state, and he winds up, you know, like taking a walk, and on that walk, he sees something that changes his life forever. Um, of course. Can I just say that I feel like this is a lie? No, it's a great book. It's called <laughs> It's called Donovan's Big Piglet Adventure. Oh! <laughs> so, okay, what does Donovan's Piglet Adventure involve? So he goes on a walk, and then he sees. Uh, I don't have the book in front of me, but uh, he sees a uh, piglet footprints, and he's on the quest to find piglets. And um, this is a very um, rare book; only one copy exists. Um, we had our friend Gerard De La Torre, uh, make a copy for us and illustrate it. And, and we read it to Don in comic or actually Don read it to us in comic con much to his chagrin. And, um, yeah. there's a surprise cameo at the end. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, there's a moral of the story, which is, you know, sometimes while you're chasing something that you want, you might miss the thing that you really need. And, you know, yeah. it, it raises a lot of philosophical questions at the end, you know, which is, um, you know, can you ever truly be satisfied? Hmm. Do you think Don will ever be satisfied? No. I, I think that's the okay. point of the story because um, okay. sp- sp- thanks for the spoiler alert. Um, you know, at the end of the story, thanks Don. for the spoiler! <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the story, Don finally catches Piglet, but he sees Minmay and he's like, well, now he wants her, but he can't. And he's stuck with Piglet in this tub floating down, you know, the flood. And he can't reach Minmay and he's just reaching for her. And, and Gerard's a great artist because he drew Don like reaching for Minmay and he has this pained look on his face like, why? Why? Wow. And and poor Piglet. Poor Piglet indeed. Well, I've got other things that you can buy because there are more than one copy. There was a BOGO sale on Comixology for Marvel, I believe it was. And so I ended up getting Silk Volume 0 and 1 by Robbie Thompson and Spider-Gwen Volume 0 and 1 by Jason Latour. And I absolutely loved both of them. I think they both have uh, similar yet different feels to them. But uh, I, I hope to get – I actually just bought – because there was – I had like a fall $5 off or something. The Spider-Women, which like connects 
all of the Spider Silk, Spider Gwen, and Spider Woman, and then I think Silk Volume Two. I know Silk has ended sadly, um, so I can catch up easily on that. But Spider Gwen is uh, is ongoing. Have you read either or both of these? I did. Um, I really enjoyed the Silk book, um, and I thought that it was much better than um, you know because we we had her story in the Amazing Spider Man book and. I really wasn't too drawn to her in that in that series, but over in um, mm. this series, you know, it was uh, it was a really good book, and just you know dealing with you know looking for her family and being yeah. trapped in a bunker for years and trying to like kind of like Kimmy Schmidt <laughs> uh, readjusting to life on the outside. Spider Gwen, I love the concept, but like the execution has never I've never really you know been too big of a fan of the execution, and I've read it on and off, and I read. I think I kind of read everything's in Spider Gwen up until the um, recent storyline where she crossed over with Miles. I just kind of lost interest. And the idea of like Gwen Stacy in an alternate reality where she became the Spider character instead of Peter, mm-hmm. yeah. I, that's interesting to me, you know. But mm-hmm. again, I've never really enjoyed the stories on an execution level. Mm. Yeah. You just mentioned me on Twitter, according to my phone. What is this? I did, yeah. Well, did you know that I hear every time you get something, it goes, eh. <laughs> Are you just going to tweet? So it's tweet at me, so I hear, eh. I hope not, because I have to edit all those out. Well, I've been I've been enjoying them. I think certainly uh, give them a shot. Uh, I guess I've been on like a Marvel female uh, kick, because I just, I, I gave Hawk. I, Kate Bishop Hawkeye shot as well, and so I'm ongoing with that because I forgot how much I loved her. Uh, and then two, I guess, actual books. One of them I think you will like. I'll let you know once I get to that one. First of all, uh, I read Persian Mirrors, The Elusive Face of Iran by Elaine Sciolino, and this was because I was going to do a seminar class that was called Graphic Novels in Historic Context, and it was, I was going to have a Persepolis, March, and Mouse, but unfortunately two people signed up for it, so there was not enough for the class. So I was reading this, and I thought, well, I might as well just read the rest of it. So here is the tagline from Amazon. As a correspondent for Newsweek and the New York Times, Sciolino has had more experience covering revolutionary Iran than any other American reporter. She was aboard the airplane that took Ayatollah Khomeini to Tehran in 1979 and was there for the revolution the hostage crisis, the Iran-Iraq war, the rise of President Khatami, the riots of 1999, and the crisis over Iran's nuclear program. In Persian Mirrors, Skiolino takes us into the public and private spaces of Iran, uncovering an alluring and seductive nation where a great battle is raging, not for control over territory, but for the soul of its people. So, yeah, I would read that if you're interested in another culture, certainly. And uh, I think as Americans, we often just attack and assume that anyone over the Middle East is the enemy and they're doing bad things. But that's certainly uh, not true. So, uh, yeah, I would I would suggest picking that up. And, Josh, I think this is something you would like. It is a, a YA or a young adult novel, but it was really good. It, it's sort of... Um, it's got a really big plot twist and kind of reminds me of Gone Girl, but not like that much. But it's called We Were Liars by E. Lockhart. And here's the tag again from Amazon. A beautiful and distinguished family, a private island, a brilliant damaged girl, a passionate political boy. A group of four friends, the liars, whose friendship turns destructive. A revolution, an accident, a secret. Lies upon lies, true love, and then the truth. And uh, at the end it says, read it, and if anyone asks you how it ends, just lie, because the plot twist is, plot twist is really <laughs> big. So you've got this this main character, and the, an accident happens, and she loses memory 
memory of that particular summer as well as that accident in particular. Oh, that reminds me of A Girl on the Train. Yeah, yeah. So it could be like that too. And she's piecing it together, and then yeah, you find out what has actually happened. So it was it was really good. I was not expecting. I was thinking something else was going to happen, but uh, yeah, I read it in three sittings, but one day. And yeah, so you could do it, Josh. Yeah. So <laughs> that is it. Uh, so if you want to pick up your copy of Donovan's Piglet Adventure, um, I guess I'm taking requests, but uh, I, I do have to pay the uh, artist. I, I think we should give people some incentives. So- so um, what's uh, the TBU Patreon at right now? Oh, my gosh. I think we have to ask Donovan's permission before we go that route. If every time the TBU Patreon gets to a certain level, we will release a page a of page? Um, Donovan's Figured Adventure. <laughs> well, it's only like, what, six You're or seven sick. pages or something? You are <laughs> sick. And I don't think it goes by levels. Does it? I love how, like... <laughs> Was it like a month and a half ago? Like, like you and I, like we had that talk in the Pokemon room at Comic Con. We're like, I think we're retiring the Piglet joke. It's like, well, yeah, you're the one. <laughs> I didn't bring it up. You brought it up. Okay. <laughs> and yet here you are rowing that boat along. With yeah. Me. <laughs> well, that's because no one can control you, Josh. Where can people find you, read your things, and listen to you? So I'm doing um uh, some articles for um Dustin at the Batman Universe .net and um. Um, I, I've done a few fun ones in the last few months. I did one about Barbara Gordon's forgotten Aww, older brother, Tony. Tony. I'm doing a Dick and Babs feature right now. And um, I've been covering Gotham since um, it started in 2014 um, at the Gotham Chronicle podcast. Um, currently with Donovan. And uh, we just um, have a new co-host now who uh, um, Don's friend Jan is joining us. And Stella, you know, um, if you like hearing me and Stella together, you can listen to the first season episodes when Stella was still watching the show and hearing her thoughts on it as she slowly loses her oh mind gosh. discussing Barbara Gordon's, you know, maybe possible mother. And um, I still do comic book film review. You know, we're kind of changing the schedule around that a bit. But uh, that's um, a show that I also do with Don and uh, Stella was on that um, previously, too. I'm my podcast with the same people a lot where we discuss different comic book movies and uh, Clone Saga Chronicles with yeah. Donovan and uh, Zach Joyner, Gerard Delator and uh, Greg Bashensky. And I feel I always feel like I'm forgetting something. But um, I mean, you know, really, though, if you're a Batgirl Oracle listener, those are the stuff that you'll uh, be into, you know, uh, especially um, uh, I would recommend, you know, looking at this stuff on the BatmanUniverse.net because we got some great stuff on there, and um, I've been traveling to a lot of cons lately, so there's, you know, fun interviews and original articles and stuff. I will say I think my favorite episode was the one where I went off on, like, a tangent about what Barbara Gordon probably does in her, like, side life, and that isn't she, like, a stripper or something? And she was... That wasn't even a real episode. It wasn't a real episode? <laughs> that was... We did an April Fool's episode, and... Um about downtown abbey and then afterwards we like just for fun like stayed on and did like a fake gotham synopsis and we talked about barbara king getting a job and you said yeah it's a it's a topless bar and or something and then you said at least she has tassels on the top yeah or me coming up with tessa gooley yep yep which we're one step closer now because um roz roz is on the show and um i don't know and he he doesn't know who talia is the actor um there's a there's um a part, um, and you could you could see this interview on YouTube. Um, TBU didn't put it on YouTube, but if you look at Alexander Sadiq, uh, San Diego Comic Con interviews, there's a video, and you hear me say to him, "Are we going to get Talia this season?" He says, "I don't know who that is," and I say, "That's your daughter," and he's like, "Oh, 
I have a daughter. I love her so much. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. Good times. Good times, but not because the show's terrible. Uh, remember. <laughs> oh, you, you haven't watched it in, in a year and a half. I, I, I was saying this. I think I said to Dawn recently. I said, we should have Stella back on this year, but if she she doesn't have to catch up on what she missed. She should just watch a random oh my episode this gosh. season. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And then just, like, come on. And, like, half of the show will be her asking, like, so why is this character doing this? Or, like, yeah. why is Lee evil now? Because yeah. Lee's evil now. It's, you uh, did explain I think that weird stuff. You me. you and Ben and I, we went out for, to that, like, taco place or, like... Oh, yeah. We went to, like, some... And, and I was, like, explaining to you everything that happened in Gotham, like, the last, like, two years. Yeah. <laughs> and I got more and more ill. Yeah, maybe on, like, a... Uh, like, the mid-season finale or something. Something bizarro. Well, you can send any questions or comments to backroll.oracle at gmail.com. I didn't read any letters this time because I knew it was going to be a packed episode. But next episode, I promise you, I will. I also forgot somebody. I'm so sorry, Michael Ridge. But I will read his letter because I forgot it in the previous episode. So it will be coming up. You can also find the show on Google Play and Stitcher. So look it up if you're having trouble with iTunes. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. And follow the Batman universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. Support TBU by subscribing to Patreon. I cannot promise any digital scans <laughs> about the book until we have confirmation from the artist as well as the uh, subject. So don't do anything until I <laughs> we gotta that get out. Piglet to give permission. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? I, I, I started that way on purpose. I was like, because I know that you leave everything in, you know, and do these like podcast cold opens. You're going to be like, you know, I do like, like, what would you do if Pennywise, you know, like, well, you know, <laughs> Jacob, you know, on one side of the sewer and Ben on the other, who would you save, you know? And I'd be like, well, Ben, because, you know, Jacob keeps on hypothetically killing me instead of Donovan. It's true. And stuff like that. It's something. true. Yeah. Explain to me why you soaked yourself in gasoline. Were you, you trying said, like, to be? Were you like, doing some sort of petition? As if I put it in a bathtub and like well, jumped in. Like, I more we thought you were about to like basically, I don't know, petition something. But yeah, tell your story about how you drenched yourself and gasoline. Yeah. So I'm driving across the state today, and I'm at Seven Eleven, and you know how um, I'm saying you know how as if like you know most of our audience hasn't like you know pumped gas in their life, but you know when you. Um, when you're filling up the car and then like the thing like thing clicks and it stops sure, putting yeah. gas in your car because the tank <laughs> oh, is full no. and like the thing. So it did that and it's like it stopped pumping and the counter that was like counting my money in the gasoline turned off and I was like, OK, this is done. So, you know, thinking that nothing bad would happen because I've done this a million times in my life, I pulled it out and like a fire hose, gasoline everywhere and the handle was off and i'm like oh my god like i'm trying to get back into the um thing but it's just like it won't stop like going and i'm like 
there's kind of that like one second shock where like, you know, I don't have time to like, you know, point it away from myself. So I'm trying to turn it off while I'm trying to, you know, like avoid getting gasoline on myself while I'm trying to put it back, you know, in the little uh, handle dispenser thing. And I, I something was wrong with it because it was in the off position, but it was still going. And I clicked it a few times till it finally turned off. And like I did the thing. But like I yelled, I had like a loud yelp and I must have been invisible because there was like people on like all sides of me and nobody was reacting as if like, you know, something strange had happened. Like they were just, I, I don't know. It's like um, in the old uh, It movie, you know, like you, you've seen the old one recently, Not right? Recently, but or I, I generally know what's happening. Yeah. So there's a scene where like, you know, young Beverly's talking about how like uh, the bullies are attacking her and there's kind of like the this old man who like looks on and like sees it, but like doesn't really react or do anything and just yeah. like walks that away. happened in so the new one too it's, there was like it's that, kind of, well that car drove past when i think mike was getting beat up i think that it was supposed to imply that like that was yeah because it did something. have the balloon in the back but, so you know luckily because i work with kids i always have like spare sets of you know clothes in my trunk of the car in case you know someone gets wet or muddy or you know just you know swimming or whatever so i i take out a spare set of clothes and i because i'm soaked in gasoline and I'm like thinking, what if someone lights a match? I'll you be the human be. torch. And I go inside the 7-Eleven bathroom and I, you know, change my clothes and I ask them for a bag for my other clothes. And like the manager could like care. This must be like, um, what was the town in it? Like dreary yeah, or yeah. dairy or D-E-R-R-Y. something? Or was, yeah. Yeah, dairy. Yeah, this must be like dairy because she could like care less about my problem. She's like, you know, she's like, are you the one that smells like gasoline? I say, yes, your pump is faulty. And she's like, well, what do you want me to do about that? I'm like, can you put a sign up? And then she's like, well, I didn't know about it. I'm like, but can you put a sign up so it doesn't happen to someone else? And she, like, sighs and, like, is annoyed at me for, like, daring to, like, you know, get gasoline all over myself as if it was my choice. And, like, she, you know, they never apologized to me. They never asked if I was okay. This was just weird. And um, I, I suspect that this was a trap by, you know, mm. a mutual, uh, you know, enemy Donovan. of ours because – I saw I saw someone in a Kanga mm. costume, like, hopping away, you know, giggling as this was happening. I wonder happening. why he does these sorts of things. Like, the pizza, this, I mean, what the exactly, pizza. what 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 does he get up to in his time? I think it's just, everyone has that, like, origin story where something happened to you in your past that just, like, it sets you off. And, like, and now you're, you're on this, like, dark path. So we need to... We need to find out what Don's origin story is, like what happened in his past that just put him on this path of like piglet kidnapping, you know, min maze Asians and all that. Maybe, yeah. Maybe, 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 maybe that'll be like after you're done, after you're done with your Alan Middleton investigative yeah. report, we can finally get to the bottom of like you know Don's secret files and yeah. origins, his secret That'd past. Be good. That'd be good. <laughs> you like talk to Denmark and he'll have one of those like you know voice mod like things where like you know. It sounds like this because he doesn't want us to know that it's him. Yeah. Well, welcome. But we'll know. Yes. Hello, BTF. It's it's not December. It's, it's not July. Weird. Yeah, what? I know. I don't even know what's going to happen. So, okay. You don't no, I, I don't. Happen. I'm a little scared. <laughs> I, I said that uh, Don and I talk about um, that we need to control you and um, let you know prevent you from doing dumb stuff and and uh, he said something like no one can no one can put a leash on that man and I was like yeah you're pretty right about that we were just talking about how Dom was the one that's like up to no good then all of a sudden within seconds it's like yeah John and I were talking <laughs> and like, you're uncontrollable it's and you true. need a leash it's like it's true you, you think so highly of I us, know your I know <laughs> 
Just plain Barbara Gordon. So now we get to go backwards. Yeah, this is all machete, yeah, it but is. uh, but it's fun. Uh, let me get my a copy here. Reach over. Shake, shake, shake. It's an earthquake. Cataclysm. You're are you you're not going to do any of those like you know, like uh, like weird questions like what would I do if like you know there was a rope and on one end there was like a cake and on the other end there was like a poisonous pill or something like you. Or, like, what would I do if Shag and Pan Pan were, like, you know, behind one different door and I could only save one from, like, a hot lava monster? Well, which one would you save? Oh, okay. <laughs> I should have come up with a better question. So I think I'm going to save, um, I think I'm going to save Pan I Pan. I have to look at, like, each of their situations and, um, oh I know that both of them are, fa- Shag yes. is a father, right? So I know that both of them are fathers, but I think that Pan Pan's son is, like, younger and would probably, like, whereas Shag's kids are, like, older. So, like, you know, Pan Pan's kid would probably be more devastated being father. I mean, any kid's going to be devastated with their father dying, but he's, like, you know, younger and probably, like, still needs his dad, you know, and it would be more emotionally devastating. So I guess I got to look at it that way, you know, like, which family would, like, be more fractured, like – you, you, you look at the reaction to the death and stuff. And, um, I mean, and I gave Shag that Firestorm, um, you know, personal message from Comic-Con a few years ago. So, you know, I, I, I've done my well, part for really him. Well, you're not really friends with Shag. Why do you say that? <laughs> I just want to put that out there. Why do you? I, I gave Shag a personal that message from, like. friends fu- with him. What do you mean? It doesn't mean I'm friends with him. I've known him longer than you, I think. Like, yeah, I mean, well, I, I mean, you give me things, but I don't think we're friends. You don't think we're friends? What? <laughs> I went to, we celebrated our birthdays together. We climbed that mountain and you wouldn't let me go to the bathroom. <laughs> oh, my God. We you climbed like, that mountain. It was, it was a trail up to Monticello. Give me a break. It's like I'm from Florida. We have we have flatlands. Well, it was this. It, it's oh all a mountain. Yeah, everything yeah. is a mountain to you. We saw the Hunger Games together. Like you we're not friends. That. Like okay. <laughs> <laughs> like you got to do. A what 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 do I have to do to be your friend? Probably like jeez. What? Trade organs. Like trade organs. Like and I give you a kidney. We can be friends. <laughs> all right, let's do it. <laughs> let's call UVA Health right now. Um, okay. I, that, I'll do it. That I don't even know where to put this. I you put to. it anywhere. I mean, it's either the bloopers or it's the cold open, oh, you know, no, like, or I think the cold open should be the, like, whatever happens after I put my hands around your neck is like all up to God or like whatever it was. You said. Yeah, but that was, <laughs> there was context surrounding that. Yeah. And there was, and there was fingers surrounding my neck. I know. There. Well, I, I, be warned, man. Cause if I see you. When I see you, it's going to happen. Well, I'm well, I'm working on that. I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna try and twist your arm after we're done with the episode. I don't think so. Okay. What do you mean you don't think so? I'm I'm <laughs> I'm closing this deal. Sure. Okay. Yo, Josh. Hey. I noticed that uh, you've been eating our foods. Yeah. It's not cool. All right. Let me talk to you about that when I get in. All right. You've been eating okay. someone else's right. food. Um, I've been eating work food that I've been given permission oh, okay. to eat. Totally pathetic, unreliable. Known throughout the world for 
It splashes up a mountain 